This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan, Matt Pinfield Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? <laughs> I have a little too much hair. Actually, did Pinfield have an era where he had hair? He I don't think have. so. I don't remember him ever having hair. No. He was always going for that Uncle Fester look. Right. Well, no offense. Well, no. I mean, Ramon and I talk about it. He's still like bouncing around, but Ramon and I always talk about him that he's like a music encyclopedia of the exact shit we grew up with. So like you can ask him anything about corn or some shit like that and he'll, you know, or POD or some shit. He just know he's just a totally encyclopedic apparently. And I've, I've always wanted I to meet that. him. Yeah, that's that. You got to have those guys in music. It's like the Martin Scorsese's or the Roger Ebert's, but of music, mm-hmm. not of mm-hmm. film. You know what I mean? Indeed. Um, I just I, you know, it's funny. I was going to start with something else, but you yeah. remind me of a time because I made a bald joke and I shouldn't do that. Right. Because one of the only things I have going for me is I'm not losing my hair. Yeah. How is this possible, by the way, know. that neither? Of, well, I don't, I don't want to say me. I mean, I not think good. I'm doing all right still like at 38. You're going to be 50. In December, our dad looks like I've said before, Benjamin Franklin. So with yeah. his hair. So it's it's sorry, uh, dad. No, I don't think he he knows that. Like, right. you know, he's he's rocking it. But it's like, uh, why didn't that happen to us? And then I've said before that they say, I guess it comes from your mom's dad. Right. Yes. And he had quite the head of lettuce. He did. He really did. He really our, did. Uh, uh, Alessandro Ruggiero. Yeah, we have the Ruggiero hair gene. We don't have the Moriarty hair gene. Um, so that, you know, that's good. But I remember I, I never, I hadn't recalled this story in a long time. It's kind of scary and kind of weird. Hmm. Did I ever tell you this? I'm sitting with John. We're in junior high school. Maybe we're in seventh grade. John DePaulo. John DePaulo, my best yeah. friend growing up. Right. Stayed after school. We went through this weird period. We didn't do this for long, but went through this like one or two month blip where we would stay after to watch the basketball games. Junior high basketball games. Bellport High School, Bellport Junior High School, Bellport Middle School, I should say. And this bald, this random adult bald man was sitting in front of us in the bleachers. And I made, I don't know why, but I made some offhand Mr. Clean joke, half whispering to John. But the guy heard me, Mm. took a beat turned around and grabbed me by the back of my neck. Now, this is a complete stranger. I'm a kid. I'm, what, 12 years old at this point. Grabbed me by the back of the neck, you know, turned around, grabbed me by the back of the neck and kind of pulled me in and said something to me, like pulled me close and said something to me, something threatening. I don't remember exactly what he said. Hmm. And then let me go. And I was mortified. And I kind of... For the rest of the game, I was kind of stewing on it, but I was also afraid, you know? So I said I was going to go, I was saying to myself, I'm going to go home and tell dad about this thing. And I have to ask dad if I ever told him about it. 
Yeah, I because I can't imagine Graydon's at that age now. Graydon's a little older, right? He's around the same age. He's thirteen. That happened to him, and he told me, I'd be fucking fuming. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not sure what I could do about it physically, but I would definitely be angry. But isn't that a weird thing? Like I was physically and verbally threatened by an adult as a twelve year old. Now I said something stupid. Yeah, I mean. He should have. He could have said something to you, but he obviously doesn't need to put hands on you. Nineteen eighty five was a different time, though, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> really? Seriously, what are we thinking? We're thinking like that's eighty six, and kind of like in the wheelhouse where we're going to be today. Our conversation is going to hang out today. But isn't that crazy? I can't even imagine. Can you imagine that happening today? There would be such a like litigious fallout, right? That it would be insane. Yeah, I would imagine so. You go to jail. Keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> Don't tell me no lies and keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> what was that song? I don't know. <laughs> Hold on. That could have made my list, actually. That was 80s, I want to say. Georgia Satellites. Georgia Satellites. What? <laughs> You're not going to get this on any other podcast, no, no, ladies no. and gentlemen. Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> How are you doing, my friend? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. I, uh, we're recording on a Saturday. We, I usually don't do any recording on Saturday, but I happen to be doing two shows today because I have to do this show and then we're doing something for, um, we're releasing Habroxia or Ilelimo on PC and, um, we redid parts of it. So we're going to do a little conversation about that. Um, you and Barry. Yeah. Me and Barry and, the, and some of the other guys too that worked on it. Oh, that's um, awesome, dude. You're going to do a little roundup. Is it going to be a Sacred Symbols Plus? No, no. I think we're going to put it on Lilymo's channel just to kind of promote, try to promote that's the awesome. game or whatever, see what happens. But very cool. Yeah, just talk about some of the additions we made because I, I wrote a whole intro and a new ending to it. And like I said, I I wasn't around when Habroxia 1 came out, so I retconned it to fit with our new games. And I'm excited about to see what people think about it or whatever. It's cool, man. I came up with this idea, actually, and we'll talk about it in the show. I think you'll appreciate it. Herboxy is a very straightforward arcade shooter. So what we wanted to do was give it context. Right. And so I wrote all of these different... I might still have it around here somewhere, do I? I don't know. Instead of it's just like stage one, stage two, stage three, I, I put it in this on our solar system, and basically the aliens are invading the solar system, and you're working your way further and further out to all the places they attacked. So that's awesome. Like the first fight is on Earth, the second fight's on the Moon, the third fight's in on Mars, the fourth fight is like in the asteroid belt and Jupiter and Saturn, and you get out and out and further out. And so I wanted, I added all these things about just intrigue about like where. So it's like you know some helium three facility in Jupiter you're fighting, and and there's just a little tag where it's like the aliens are drawn to your helium three facility to refill their ships or whatever that kind of stuff so we just wanted to give it I some texture that. um but the cool thing i think i came up with although i didn't i did draw it but uh it's bad i don't know where it is but they obviously did it again once i was like what's instead of having these screens where it's like stage one stage two and you just flip through it's like let's have a map of the solar system and love that yeah so we did that and so like you choose each place as you go. Okay. And then this text and the name on the bottom and all of that is cool. And because we used a lot of asset flips in Habroxia 2, and I gave a lot of these enemies and monsters, or not monsters or machines, backstories about what they were, I had to figure out why they were in Habroxia 1, which was a challenge, but I, I did figure it out. So like for instance, in Herboxia 2, there's a one of the places you go is a prison colony in there. So Herboxia 2 takes place in their system. Right. You're like attacking them. And uh, they have a prison colony full of humans. So you attack there and the and the enemy's name is something, whatever. And it's the warden because he's like the, the overseer. So he's in the first game, though, like as of asset flip. So I'm like, he's looking for slaves like that's why he's here. So so like that kind of I had to figure all that stuff out. But Dude, I love cool. that. I love yeah. the thoughtfulness of that. And now you're putting it. This is going to steam. 
Steam, so, we're going to put it on PS5 imminently as well because it's not there. And then I think we're going to do, I mean, this, I'll just say it here is uh, I'm probably going to do a physical run of them. Dude, our first PS5 so game is, uh, will be um, our first physical PS5 game. And then we'll release the patch for So Hiroxia already exists. If you, by the way, if you own it on PS4 or Vita, you'll get it for free on PS5. Oh, that's cool, too. Yeah, that's a nice so, little perk. Yeah. So and you got the extra it. content in there now. Yeah, because Abraxia One sold like thirty thousand copies, something like that. That's but huge. It is, but it's it's at all different price points, right? So oh, we sold it for eight dollars, which is its max, and we've sold it for like ninety nine cents and two dollars and four dollars. So who the hell knows? So I we gotcha. just want to we want to leave the games in good places. When we're a little frustrated, I am definitely frustrated with the way Super Perils of Baking did, which is not good. Um, just because it's so much better than the original Perils of Baking and Perils of Baking sold more. It's like, that's outrageous. <laughs> Doesn't like, that suck? No offense to Barry, because he knows better than anyone. Super or The original Perils of Baking is very crude, right. like borderline console worthy game, you know, and we made it into something so heavily inspired by Super Mario World with like it. I wrote a fucking whole epic poem you know, for that, like ties through the entire game and all this stuff. And the, the secret ending of the game ties in the Hybroxia and all that. And I'm like, oh, you motherfuckers. Doesn't it suck? There's no oh. way to like capture the zeitgeist. Right. And just kind of, you know, how do you harness that lightning in a bottle? It's like so elusive with anything. I feel like that's with anything, though. Right. A, a, a post, a Twitter or Instagram post. It's like, why did this one do so well and this one right. do so poorly? It's just the essence of hitting things at the right time. Who, know, who knows? Yeah, it's frustrating, you know, but uh, but someone did check me because I, I kept saying I think that I, and I do think that this had something to do with it, that we the game didn't do well, in part because we released it into the PSN at the time when the PSN was totally fucked with shovelware. There was like a year or two where shovelware was absolutely murdering PSN and people were really upset about it and they fixed it right after. I, I did a huge show on it, actually. I think I might have had something to do with them fixing it, actually, but um Super Perils of Baking was just launched into this thing where it's like, oh, here's Super Perils of Baking and a couple other real games and 7,000 fake games. And they're all just there. That equal. sucks. And so I think that had something to do with it. But someone was like, maybe your game just sucks. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. No, it's, it's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that needle in the haystack stack thing. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you find it if you don't know? You got to be tuned in to, you know, that that's the thing. That's the nice thing about Sacred Symbols, though. You have a built in audience there. Yeah, yeah. truly. So, yeah, that's uh, so Hybroxia, Hybroxia 2, Hybroxia 2 killed 2. We're going to do another Hybroxia game, Hybroxia 0, which is a prequel. Oh, and that'll be cool. Awesome. And I've designed it. I'm saying so much here. I don't think Barry really cares, though, is that Hybroxia 0 I've designed as uh, the story will be a training module. So it's going to be like a much more arcadey like very arcadey, like that's what they're training to fight the aliens in. Kind that's of a great thing. idea. And then Herbroxia 3 will be the last one, and that will be like the culmination of like the humans and the aliens fighting each other once and for all. Super sick. Yeah. So, But you definitely want to finish it with 3. You yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I want to move on. It's not like... Yeah, I like that. I think it's so funny. We're in the same trap that a lot of developers, big developers, you know, real developers find themselves in, which is we already invested so much into this thing. Like we got to extract as much out of it. But at some point... I want to move on and our, I want a role playing game, especially to shine. I am very curious to see what people think of it, because I've been saying this. It's very true to 16 bit, the 16 bit era. And I think some people are going to think like, well, this doesn't really pass muster as a modern game. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of the idea. So I hope that people, you know, get that spirit of it. I love um, that. And the story is certainly awesome. Like I, I, if I do say so myself. 
So the story is I know I know first and foremost the story is awesome. And I love the fact it's not, you know, a quote unquote pixel remaster. It's something like the essence of like a true early nineties sixteen bit JRPG. Early to mid nineties. Yeah, definitely. Because I'm playing Sea of Stars and I'm I'm almost done with it and it's so beautiful and it's really great. Um really, really great. Doing something very different than us. It's much more K um it's it's much more linear uh, than ours. It I think it will is. be in some sense. It is yeah. linear. Yeah, are you playing it? I I played the demo and I started. I'm like two or three hours into the oh, actual great. game. Oh uh, yeah. great! Maybe we'll maybe we'll have you on the spoiler cast if you're done in time. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm playing that and I'm like, oh man, like this be- game is beautiful. It and is. our game is beautiful too. But we're trying to we want to make 2D retro games that's it's like unapologetic we want that's what we want to do i love that and so i just hope people continue to dig the spirit of it i thought super perils of baking was a very very good game and i was annoyed by its not so much as critical reception it did pretty well actually but it's commercial reception and herbroxia 2 frustrated the shit out of me because it did really well commercially and critically but i put all the story in the twin breaker as a joke and then people took it seriously, not understanding the meta of the game. And then I took that. Se- I was sensitive about it. So I'm like, I'm not going to put that much story in Herboxia 2. Then people put her play Herboxia 2 and they're like, where the fuck's the story? <laughs> I can't win. And then so I did this whole like we did like this emergency patch where I'm like, all right, I'm going to write a whole thing for it. And now that's like the version of Herboxia 2 that exists. But I don't know, man. So then I'm like, I'm going to sit down and write this fucking poem. I'm not a poet. I'm not Alexander Pope. No, but you can't yeah. write. I can, but I, I, it was not natural for me at all. And I wrote this and I wrote for children. You yeah. Know? Um, I don't know. I thought it would be cuter than it, than people that thought it was, I guess. You got to honor what you want to do with each project. That's the lesson there. You know, you can't please everybody. You got to just kind of go in for it with conviction for yourself. And then people will come to it from that genuine vision. I think, you know, that's easier said than done, though, because you want your product to do well. Right. You want people to enjoy it. But that's the, that's the the hard part of creating. I think it's just kind of being true to your own vision. And just you know, the rest comes as it comes. You know, that that's Indeed. anything. I think Indeed. making anything, and that's you know, again, that's a, you, it's hard to uh, walk the walk, but you gotta. Indeed. All right. On that note, on that high note, let's do it. Let's get into it. Today's topic is MTV, and I wanted to throw it over to you because you had this idea for this topic, which I think is really great. And it's funny because I don't think MTV has virtually any relevance anymore, or at least <laughs> not much relevance. And I think its era of true relevance is probably 20 years behind us, at least, I would say. Yeah. But yeah. this and actually a lot of that irrelevant time or some of that irrelevant time is when I was even watching it. But I'm curious what you wanted to talk about with this and where, where your mind went with uh, with MTV, which is a really broad topic, but also a very specific topic about music videos and the, and the proliferation of music and the zeitgeist, of the culture and how I would say from probably the early 80s to the late 90s, MTV kind of drove American. Culture. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. That was the kind of, that was the uh, that was the era, man. And of course, like 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 always nostalgia, right? It's knocked back. So a little bit of remember when in this case remember growing up when mtv played actual music videos indeed i know that's like that was like such a thing and now it's people used to say that almost as a as a lark and now it's true it's it's it's, it's so it, true it, yeah right it's because it became kind of spun off with viacom or paramount whatever you're supposed to call them now and being under that umbrella and spinning off into this basically this reality tv 
entity, right? Abandoning their roots. I guess first they kind of shuffled that off to VH1, another Paramount entity, and then just kind of music videos sort of kind of went away altogether. So they are extra nostalgic now. But you know what, Kyle? I always loved the music video format, you know, as a as a movie guy. It's a, it's a short film. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all it is. It's a format with almost infinite possibility. The only real rule is you got to have the music, right? Otherwise, it's a medium with really kind of few limitations, if you think about it. You could do almost anything. You're really bound only by your imagination. And I was always drawn to it as a kid. You know, plus, it's short, right? It's a short format. So you're in and out, even if it's an expensive venture, it's four minutes not a feature film. I was always, I always found the format of watching music videos very exciting. You know, they could be narrative. They could tell a complete story. They could be stylized. They could just be a vehicle, a very straightforward edited collage of the band for promotion purposes. We've seen plenty of those, you know, they may come up in our conversation. They could be live action. They could be animated. They can be a send up of television or movies. They could, they're, they're, as a, as an art form, their potential is literally boundless. You know, I, I would be content today to just work on commercials and music videos. I find them really, really kind of a, a great creative outlet, unlike film or TV series or an animated series or whatever kind of art you could get into. They were really special. I'm, I'm kind of sad that they've fallen by the wayside in many ways, maybe with the YouTube and sort of an ushering of the short format, which I would argue YouTube has gone long, largely long form, but maybe it's been a kind of return to it, but there was just something very special about the era of watching music videos on cable television, not on demand, just came on and you got kind of got what you got. And you could sit down and you could watch six or 10 music videos at a time and just be entertained and enjoy the music and enjoy the visuals. It was really just kind of a fun era. And I thought we would just go in and just kind of, I guess, for me, I want to know how you broke it down. And there's really no rules. But I tried not to go by like a beloved musical genre. Like Mm -hmm. for me, that would be something like hip hop. And then try to artificially squeeze at least one rap video in there. What I did, and I tried not to go off the merits of the music too much. Though a few of the things I picked, obviously the song is good. I tried to go off the video itself. You know, just hold up the video itself. And not even really a best of, but just music videos that I remember impacting me in some way. And I think my selections may be, some of them may be a little offbeat. But again, they're personal, right? And they span probably two era, you know, two decades worth, you know, just in, in choosing five. Let's say I have a bunch of honorable mentions, but if we're just going to go five, five a piece or something like that or so, I think that could be that could be fun. And, you know, I just got done working on a video for a mutual friend of ours, animating a music video for her. So they were on my mind. You know, they were just kind of on my mind of like, wow, I really enjoy this being in and out, you know, sh- something short form. Maybe that they, they always say like MTV style editing, right? Gen X, your generation. We grew up with that sort of short form taste of things. And I think there's something too for the older generations, the boomers on back, 
that they didn't really get this. You know, this was really very much our thing from Gen X on forward. Yeah, that's so. That's, I feel like it's. Uh, I feel ownership over it. That's what I was going to say to you. Was there something interesting about um, the provenance of music videos? Because really, they come from deep into the pre MTV era, and really from the fifties. But a lot of it was live action with dubs, and yeah. we see that on all the earliest variety shows and the late night shows on and on and on. And then you, and that doesn't happen nowadays. People really play on those shows now, but a lot of that was dubbed into the studio kind of mimicking and, and, and that was fun. And that is a piece of what I love about music videos actually. And I I think I've said this to you and articulated this to you before is that I, I don't like music videos. Generally speaking, if the band's not in it playing, that to me is an essential part of it. It doesn't have to be them playing the entire time. But if you know if there's like probably they're editing between a half dozen shots or things, sure. one of those has to be the band playing. Right. Because I think that that's really important. I hate when actually I'm wearing a dread shirt and their video for same old road is shitty, in my opinion, because it's just it's cool because it's claymation and all this interesting. But they're not in yeah. it. It's like, I don't know, man. I don't part of the fun of, of music and live music is thinking of the guys playing it and and them playing it live. And I, I love that kind of thing. So when I think about, like think about the Beatles, the Beatles did music videos and they, oh, and sure. they did MTV style music videos. But the reality is, is that that was, they were so far ahead of their decades ahead of their time in every way with that, that even their contemporaries weren't really able to do the same. You know, anything about the beach boys and others like that, they weren't doing similar things. A lot of it again was live action or live dub. And you think about some of the variety shows in the seventies, um, like the, the, the music shows, that go sure. in the eighties. And those yeah. are almost, it's so funny. I, I go look for, I don't know, something live from the seventies, like the Bee Gees live or whatever. And then it, it will come up with something from what was that show? Um, that seventies variety music show, soul train, soul train or something yeah. like that where, but they're not there. It's like, Oh, Bee Gees live or someone live. And it's like, it's not live. It's just, a, it's literally the raid. It's the stereo version of it. And then playing it. Right. <laughs> and there's famous shows in Britain that do that, that did that for a long time too. Yeah, but, top of the pops and all that. Right, right. Like they don't. Yeah. In fact, Nirvana lampooned top of the pops when they were on it. I don't know if you've ever seen it where they just mm. don't play and do not sing anything right. So like, <laughs> I like, never saw I that. Think, I think like one of them, like uh, Dave Grohl's just hitting a cymbal and they're like not even singing. And I he's just love playing it like this or whatever, because they wanted to play yeah. and they weren't allowed, I guess. So I think of that. But then I think come the 80s, obviously. It really all begins on MTV, I guess, with Video Kill the Radio Star. Yeah. But I think of my own era with MTV is a little bit later than yours in that my earliest nascent memories of MTV are the late 80s and into the early 90s. And I used to watch it a lot with our sister, Dana, who was very, very attached to MTV at that time. And I have very specific memories of music videos from that era. Basically, 1990, like Faith No More, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Stone Temple Pilots and the Chili Peppers, the Chili Pepper, you know, give it away. That video is like iconic. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I think about that video. I also think about different characters that were around at this time. Um, Kennedy and Loader. And we, we later get to someone like Pinfield, but even people like RuPaul come from this era on MTV yeah. and VH1. And I, I like because people look at RuPaul's like, oh, RuPaul's drag show. And I'm like, dude, you are. <laughs> 30 years late to, to Ru, like who RuPaul really is and like where he comes from. And I always love that because no one really, I mean, I'm sure there were people making fun of RuPaul and calling him gay and shit, but he was kind of just like a figure in, in culture. And everyone's like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the gay guy that dresses like a woman that's on MTV or VH1 and does, you know, you better work. So 
Yo, yep, there was a whole period. And Martha Quinn, right? Yo, and MTV Martha Quinn, of course. MT- yeah, right? and MTV News. And that's the other thing I was going to yes. say, too, was there are three shows specifically. And then a spinoff that I wanted to bring up. But we can get into all of this is that I was a big mark for Total Request Live, which is after mm. your time. But that came out when I was in ninth grade. And that was a, that was a tradition after school um, for year for several years. 120 Minutes was a major, major, major show to me when I discovered 120 Minutes through the 311 forums when I was in middle school. I was like, wait, what? And you'd stay up until one in the morning or whatever it was. And it would just be all the shit you want to listen to. Finally, yes. K-Rock and everything, just one after the other after the other. And I used to record it on VHS. And then Headbangers Ball was something I was introduced to primarily. That started in the late 80s. I was introduced to it primarily when it moved to MTV2. And that was the other thing I wanted to say was MTV2, what used to be called M2. And then MTV2 in the late 90s and into the early 2000s was fucking awesome. That was peak MTV. It because really they finally was. said, like, fine, fuck it. We're not doing any music videos anymore with the exception of like TRL and our overall little shows gonna be a lot of different things, the real world and road rules and all this stuff. And on the other side, we're going to put all the music videos and they really for 10 years really did that. And it was it was awesome. So that I wrote down in my notes, the last time I remember MTV being culturally relevant in my life was the summer of 2005, because that was the last time I lived home at dad's and I would have it on in the background constantly to the point where it would really be the same 50 videos. And you would be like, oh, now here and, and the music I think of of that time like Weezer's Beverly Hills comes to mind. And oh, stuff like that's that. a big one. And like that, that specific era. So yeah, it's a, it's a really great. And then of course, like you said, VH1 and the spinoff to VH1 and kind of the more the live music and kind of the more indie folk, you know, Lollapalooza. What was that? What was that? Um, Lilith Fair. Lilith Fair. And that oh kind of God. stuff. You know, that was kind of more like VH1's situation. Did they do all the unplugged as well? Right. The unplugged that? stuff. And then right. they did like pop-up video and yes. which was awesome. I, I have no there are some ideas that were so good where I'm like, why did you stop doing this? And then suddenly like this, I feel like yeah. MTV just stopped being re- really truly relevant in music. It became relevant for probably 10 or 15 years solely for and VH1, especially because I used to review those shows at IGN solely for the reality television. And now I don't hear anyone give a flying fuck about it and music videos are still very much in existence they're just on youtube and people still make music videos and some of them are really good some of them suck but that's not any different than back in the day remember when you had like a big record let's say like um stone temple pilots core or something and it was like the or no doubts tragic kingdom and it would be like the fourth or fifth video that would come from it would always be like the live footage video like they're like we're not even it's literally we have no money or time on tour. <laughs> we spent enough right like so we're just going to do like live footage of them fucking around and having fun and that's going to be the video that's a great yeah. point that yeah. was always the rhythm mm-hmm. yeah really, you get like the really good video yeah the second video the third video sometimes they would go back and do another video for the first one so like tears for fears did that and alien and farm did that and a bunch of others and then they would finally get to like the kicking the album out the door you know, when they're on tour kind of video. It's so true. I forgot about MTV too. And then, you know, it kind of got, yeah, really the reality TV show starting with the real world and then like a slow trickle into the jackass age. And then of course, Rob Deerdick with ridiculousness and all that kind of stuff. And then that, that just be, kind of became the dating shows, Flava Flav. I don't know if that was VH1 or MTV. Yeah, they but, become one know, and the same at some point. A lot of that stuff goes to VH1, I think. You know, Brett Michaels, remember he had his whole mm-hmm. vehicle on there right so it was yeah it it really it was an interesting era but it did i love your point about music videos always existing as sort of this promotional thing for bands and just really getting them in front of people on the tv but mtv was that one-stop shop now there was a place to just show them right now it's landed back on youtube and i guess that's sort of a a one-stop shop too 
or the you know the band could just have their videos on their websites or stuff like that but yeah that was just the one place it is interesting how they got out and how then viacom sort of dissolved the mtv vh1 thing at least to the traditional you know form of that way before cable sort of evaporated they almost it almost is like the prescient like they saw the writing on the wall but i don't really think that's what it is but it is kind of lucky for them that they kind of folded folded that up ahead of how the format would go where now cable is all but irrelevant 2023 right that's what's so fun about looking back and again just like tuning in and like the radio still is now just kind of getting what you get you know which is kind of in this sort of on demand i could watch anything or listen to anything anytime there's just something charming about remembering when it wasn't like that you know tuning into the top 40 on the radio or tuning into mtv and just seeing something new or seeing something you saw 30 times or seeing something you like or something you didn't like and just being beholden to what was airing, you know, that's just such a, I'm sure there's people listening to us right now. Not many. Cause we have, we have basically older people listening to the show, but where they don't even remember that, where it was like, you know, you watch what you're given. <laughs> it's like so crazy to think yeah, we it live is, through all that. Yeah, it is. It is very, very strange and very interesting in the sense that, uh, that feeling of, especially on the radio, but also on, on MTV of just turning it on too quickly or too late rather. So you get the tail end of the song or you're hoping it's only in, they're in the chorus and you're hoping it's before the first, the second verse, but it's the end of the, the song and you get so frustrated. You're like, God damn it. It does seem very quaint. Like I said, with uh, total request live, especially when that launched in 98, uh, when I was in ninth grade, Carson Daly hosting it or whatever, I'd come home and watch that every day, every single day. And eventually became canny enough to start recording the videos I wanted. I used to record. I remember recording like Offspring's Pretty Fly for a white guy off of it. And <laughs> obviously 311's Come Original. And I remember people were playing pranks because you would vote online, I think. And then people would play pranks where I think New Kids on the Block won t- TRL once and all, the, all these organized. And, then, and it would be like an hour and 90 minutes. So they wouldn't be able to get everything in. So they would be like, number six today is whatever. And then it would just be a truncated version of the video. And you get really mad because you want that was the video you wanted to see. I thought that was really fun. Like very, for, it was perfect for people my age that had an eclectic taste in music because I liked I wasn't really into pop music at that time. That was a lot of Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and stuff like that. But um, it was a cool way. That was kind of the last burning embers of MTV being relevant in my life. After that, it was like jackass and all that kind of kept it relevant, but it certainly wasn't wasn't music anymore. No, it changed. And you know what, Kyle? I mean, it always was, but even dating back to the early 80s. But what's so important to say about this, I think, for us, both of us, is that it was so New York, especially that TRL era, mm-hmm. people flocking the Times Square to be in the show, to be shot outside the window. Yeah, did you ever and, see that when you were down there? Did you ever see people up down oh there? Oh, my God. I, would, I mean, we would try to avoid Times Square, but I often worked in that vicinity, whether it was a little bit uptown, further uptown or a little further downtown. But I often worked in Midtown. So by, by some extent, it was unavoidable. I mean, Nickelodeon and the Paramount building were at 50th and Broadway. So that's right in the heart of it. You know, it was just TRL was just a few blocks downtown. So, but, you know, just the fact that that was such a, a New York institution and people would come from out of town just to get up, you know, just to get a little screen time outside the window when they shot going to a commercial or something. So New York and such an East Coast entity when really everything else, almost everything else for film and television was Hollywood. 
you know, felt so intrinsically part of like an East Coast vibe. And they and they held on to that, you know, it was all done. The art direction, the people that started the whole thing, the people that designed the MTV logo and did the, um, you know, did the animated interstitials and brand, you know, the logos and the flying logos and the brand IDs and the bumpers. It was just through and through. It was just like a taste of New York, which I always thought was so cool. And as I got older and I understood that more, it was like a source of pride. So talk to me about some of the stuff you remember from the 80s. I mean, what comes to mind for you? You were talking about some of the acts and some of the. So I wonder where your mind goes. Yeah. When, I mean, when it comes to the 80s, I mean, it's just a collective image of just tuning in to music videos. I love what you said, too, about back then. It was all radio or maybe we had cassette tapes. This was pre CD. So it was all oral, you know, it was all listening to the music. So I love what you said about the bands being in the video and having a chance to actually see them as well as hear them. Because prior to that, aside from appearing on television at a late on a late night show or a show like Soul Train or something like that, where they would make an appearance, unless you went to a live show, you didn't get to see the band. It wasn't a thing yet. You know, TV was still, think about it, was only like 30 years old at that point. It was in its infancy. Mm. You know, it was still the Wild West. So MTV and seeing the music videos was a chance to see your favorite artists, your favorite groups, your favorite bands. And I love thinking about it that way. It was kind of a miss if you couldn't catch a glimpse of them in the video, whether starring as a part in something narrative or just playing on stage and, you know, hyping that aspect of it up. I think I thought of it when I was a little younger as well. That's kind of cool that they have the restraint not to have their face plastered over it. They, they, they would rather tell a story or do something artsy or something. But I think for fans, that was a point of consternation. It was like, well, yeah, but where's the band? You know, where's, where's John and, and Richie Sambora? I want to yeah. see them. I don't yeah. want to see this, you know, stage play acted out with these randos. I want to see the band, you know? So, you know, what's funny though, I think of rock music, especially acts that were successful, that had a lot of money. They sort of, they were able to take liberties and do that because it wasn't a, it wasn't at a certain point, think of Taylor Swift today, right? Like Taylor Swift is so big. She doesn't need to have her face on anything anymore. It's done. It's over. Right. And when those acts get to that level, you don't think of the Genesis and the Tom Petty and the heartbreaker, you know, whatever big bands. They didn't need to do that. So I always thought it was cool when they had the money and they could just say, ah, we're not even going to be in this one. Give it to a, direct, a big name director. We'll do it. We have this, you know, highfalutin concept and we'll just go with it. But, you know, then it was to the era of, you know, we, well, we could do something animated. We could do something a little more stylish. We could, we could put out the money to, to do this. We don't have to, we don't have to have our face play. They already know who we are. You know what I mean? I think at the height of MTV, probably you talk about the early 90s. By the time it reached the late 80s, early 90s, and I think it was reaching its zenith at that point. Mm -hmm. Like it was reaching the summit of how big it was and how successful it was and how popular it was. That there was a lot of that, but rap music never did that. Rap music, I can't even think of a case where the rappers were not front and center. You know, it was all about that huge ego. Like mm -hmm. they had to be in it, you know, the cars and the, and the women and everything like that. But the rappers, I can't even think of a single instance. And I'm talking about from Beastie Boys on through like 
Public Enemy, the West Coast stuff, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, they were always in their videos. You know what I mean? There was never an instance where they had this kind, you know, this kind of um this concept, this artsy concept where they were just taking a back seat. They always had to be in there. And you kind of love rap music for that. It, it kind of introduced a whole style. You knew what you were getting. You know, it was a, it was really kind of God, I mean, I don't think rap music would have reached the suburbs like it did at the rate it did without music videos. That's another thing I think of, right? It would have in the, in the inner cities and b-boying and breakdancing and graffiti. It was like part of the culture, but I think the rate of how fast it seeped out side of the cities to the suburbs and to a larger fan base was largely a result of music videos and just bringing it to the masses, bringing that whole musical form to the masses, that genre. I also think it was, it was interesting to allow a literal fusion of, of the style of the music and the genre of the music with the style that would come out of that. So you think about new wave and um, flock of seagulls or something, right? Like the flock of seagulls haircut is famous really from a single video, although they, they did multiple videos, but Iran is the, the video that people always think of, which is an, an, an iconic MTV music video. But then you also think about things like hair metal. And I think about new metal from the sense of Slipknot and Mudvayne and Mushroomhead and the guys that wore costumes or masks and stuff. I think that they were, all this was very, the music's good, I think, of all the bands I just mentioned. But I think that the like the the aesthetic was so heightened by the ability to see it and, and digest it potentially for the first time, probably for the first time by seeing it all together at once. So that when you saw Mudvayne's video for Dig or something and they're dressed like devils, basically, <laughs> it re, which I thought was super cool. I had a poster of them on my wall in high school. I love them. And uh, which is so, so strange. It was very scary and weird. Look, they don't wear masks anymore or anything like that. But Slipknot still does. But um. I think that there's it's cool that MTV kind of gave rise not only to a bunch of different genres from the most poppy stuff to, you know, like we were saying, headbangers ball and some pretty hard stuff, never black metal or anything like that, but pretty hard stuff. But then things like uh, you have brought up Richie Sambora and and just think about poison and a little God. bit later and rat and whatever. Um, and I just think a lot of that benefited from from the aesthetic, the visual aesthetic that was that's seen, a great point. Know, yeah, glam rock and hair metal. Mm -hmm. That was the, the imagery and the look was such a huge part of that. You couldn't have it with any, any other way. It was right, like Kiss was almost it. a little early, you know, like Kiss Kiss took advantage of it a little bit, but they actually it's kind of cool that they were able to do it before it, you know, because and that must have been same thing with like a David Bowie style, yeah. you know, Ziggy Stardust type character that you're playing. Like they were able to do it a little bit before, but it wasn't That's true. Yeah. Can you imagine like those personas? I love bringing up David Bowie, but Kiss, especially like reaching the pinnacle of popularity without even really with just TV appearances and like album covers and stuff like that, or a magazine article or two, like doing it and sort of flying high and already being very successful, like globally recognizable before MTV, before the advent of MTV, that that's pretty special. You got to have something, you know, and I'm not, I can't really weigh Kiss musically with any kind of expertise because I'm not a musician. That's more your thing. But they did something very powerful in just knowing that maybe they weren't the best act musically, but their visual presentation was so strong and so appealing somehow. We talked about this on the show before to kids, especially, or, you know, all uh, young boys 
probably aging from the range, you know, ranging from the age of six through 18, right? They just had something, you know, talk about capturing the zeitgeist mm-hmm. and David Bowie before that, you know, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. I love the point about glam rock and hair metal, poison, rat. I remember Cinderella, Striper, that whole genre. Yeah. LA, LA guns, guns, like all of those, all of those guys, like they, it's, uh, it's interesting. The, the, uh, like I said, I think the only, the other eighties era genre that really benefited from it, I think was new wave. You think about Devo, for instance, sure. Like a completely iconic look from their oh music videos. Right. And I say that with all due respect, I fucking love Devo. I don't think that's a lot of thing. A lot of people know about that's good is one of my favorite eighties songs ever. I love that song. Song rules. And then you got songs. Shout from, out Mark mother's bath. Oh, hell yeah, dude. And Still Josh, very relevant. Yeah, they are. Josh freeze plays drums with them now. Who's like, who is the drummer of the vandals and all these different. Drums. Oh, like, I didn't fun. know that. Dude, I want to see them so bad. That's they're, their live acts are supposed to be dope. They still wear all the same outfits and, and they play that very straight up like mechanical, like they're like looking straight ahead and like all like marching as they're playing and stuff like that. I'm like, this is dope. Dude, the stagecraft is so, so important. influential. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Right. So- took that whole German thing and made it accessible for Western audiences to the, to the fact, I remember our aunt Joni who was very mainstream disco had very mainstream tastes as a person born in the early sixties loves Devo. Like somehow Devo was strange, but somehow ex- accessible. Yeah, it was like our craft work, you know, or like one yes, of those, ba- like, you know, exactly. like, like a, exactly a, a, right. it's a version of craft work or one of these very weird <laughs> European bands that were even early that we could understand <laughs> that was like translated for our minds. And then I think about it's funny. I, I, what I what, another thing I loved, and this is just neither here nor there, but I loved when bands didn't look the way you thought they would look. For some reason, I always think of the band Helmet which is a very random rock band from the early nineties. Yeah. And they still exist today. But what I love about them is they were playing like, if you, if you listen to the song unsung or something, it was like, just like real thrashy, you know, early rock. They're all in like button downs and like all like dressed really nice and stuff. And I'm like, that's dope too. You know, like, and that's like a meme today about like when you see a guy dressed in, in like a suit and tie at, at, a, at a hardcore show or like when the guitarist at a hardcore show is in a suit, you're about to die in the pit or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, dude, that irony of like the juxtaposition, like, you know, with the visual presentation versus the music and the expectation Mm -hmm. of like, Oh, these guys sound like this. So they must look like this. And then being able to either go along with that image, you think of somebody like Guar, right? It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. But then you could do the opposite thing, you know? And yeah, like the advent, I love you talking about the nineties too, because it was, you think about the 80s with MTV and sort of the the flashpoint or the genesis of it, but I think in many ways, the early to mid 90s was the strongest. And maybe that's a specific age perspective for me because I was in my late teens and early 20s at that point, and you were just old enough to start getting into that stuff. So maybe that's just kind of our wheelhouse. But I do remember that being very powerful and sort of the advent of nerd rock with Weezer and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, very super important. In fact, ironically, for all the nostalgia, especially of the '80s and how much I love the whole that whole decade, I only had one video in the '80s of like my top five or six picks, and that was Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Oh and yeah, I that's just a, think that's a, I love that video. Oh, dude, it was so impactful to me. It was just 
eye candy. It was mesmerizing. You know, I guess 86, I'm like 12 years old. 86 is a very special year, I think, for just our nostalgia. But if you're thinking about MTV, it's kind of a special time because they had a head of steam. It wasn't early 80s where it was still kind of figuring itself out. Maybe there wasn't enough. So they had maybe 10 videos in rotation at first. You know, now every band, it was essential to have a couple of music videos to promote every album and maybe more than that. And there was hundreds and hundreds of music videos and the budgets were getting bigger and they were getting bigger name directors and they were getting, you know, they were willing to put more money into it for promotional purposes or maybe just for, you know, maybe just for bragging rights. You know, it was like, you have to have this MTV music awards, all that kind of stuff. So 86, we were really, we were, we were rolling now, you know, the formative years were over. It was a, a known thing. It was a known commodity. And Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer, man. I don't, I mean, Peter Gabriel's fascinating to me just as being a part of Genesis, one of the biggest rock bands ever. I mean, a lot of people credit Genesis with ushering in progressive rock, Hell yeah, I love you know, or, rock. or at least one of the players in that. Right. And you got Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford and, and Tony Banks and Steve Hackett. And yeah, everybody in the band, it was like almost Zeppelin esque and like everybody in the band is a player. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no like weak link in that chain. So Peter Gabriel being initially and then being part of that and then leaving was always fascinating to me. But then, you know, Sledgehammer just as an animated, one of the early animated videos, not hand-drawn, you know, stop motion. But in researching it, it does make sense. Nick Park of Ardman Animation, you know, think Wallace and Gromit. This was early Ardman before their huge success. Now they have Nathan Love, one of the biggest production houses, one of the highest quality animation studios in the in our country, you know, sort of the the United States extension or the United States entity of England's Ardman. So Nick Park, and then I think the brothers Quay, another claymation stop motion team that's our maestros of the craft animating this thing. And just how also like just a great song, just a great rock song and a great expensive expensive visual presentation to go along with that song. An epic album, you know, the So album, an epic album, mm-hmm. and, and as a promotional vehicle. That, I think, everything about that video, it's kind of a weird pick for me because it's not exactly my style of music now or then, but it was just special in that that one video, I think, captures just a time and what it felt like. and. I think when it was at sort of the height of its power, the Mm. music video was at the height of its power, or at least coming into that, you know, reaching that zenith. It's so funny you should bring up so because I was just just apropos of nothing. I was just watching something. I watched this guy. I can't remember his name on YouTube. I just found him recently where he goes into like the top 10 songs of a random year, this date that he publishes it. So it was 1986 of this date, 1986, the top 10 songs. And Sledgehammer was, I think, number one that week. And he was saying that and you must know this, or maybe you do know this. I didn't know this is that that song was written like very, like basically they were done with the record and they had like one last idea. And so they like basically unpacked all their stuff and did sledgehammer. No, I didn't even know that. And that they named it, I guess, after this idea that they were like construction workers on the record. That's like, they were using a lot of analogies while they were making the record. Like, Oh, you know, all their little, all the little sayings that they would say during it, that, that 
called to like construction or carpentry or whatever. So they called it sledgehammer. And that was, <laughs> I thought that was so interesting because that, that is a really, really iconic visually aesthetically pleasing video, very similar to dire straits in some sense, uh, money for nothing, which is one of the iconic kind of animated or manipulated um, videos of that era too. I love that video too. Early CG. Yeah. I mean, one of the first CG. Yeah, isn't it the could, first I, or something or one of the first 3D? It was definitely the first, as far as I know, it was definitely the first computer, you know, 3D animated music video. There were other things up to that point that had been done in commercials and some, you know, sequences in film, but that was definitely the, I think, as far as I know, the first music video that used it, which is, I mean, think about this is the mid eighties. You know, it's and those two videos, interestingly enough, both animated ironically, but they just feel still like the mid 80s. I think I read a thing of Peter Gabriel talking about making that video with Nick Park and the other animation geniuses behind it. And the fact, you know, that sequence where it's stop motion and pixelation and that thing where the, the fruit circling his face, he said he was Peter Gabriel said he was under that glass plate for like 16 hours at a time. And he remembered it was so labor intensive and so expensive, but he was comforted by the fact that no one's going to be stupid enough to replicate this. No one's going to do this. It's, re- it's stupid. I almost said the retarded word. It's so stupid. <laughs> but it's so just stupid it. that You're no like, one's. I almost e- just said the retarded word. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to copy this. You know, and I love the fact that, you know, Peter Gabriel just went on to only get bigger and Nick Park and Ardman and the Brothers Quay. These are all household names now. But this was when they were kids. I mean, they were young. You know, they were really young. Peter Gabriel wasn't exactly a kid anymore, but the animators were young, you know, and just starting out. And God, I still I still think Sledgehammer is one of the coolest videos because we hadn't really seen any outside of Terry Gilliam. And the stuff he did for Monty Python, we hadn't seen a lot of stuff like that. Hmm. You know, it was very avant-garde still. Sure. You know? yeah, and shout out to Peter Gabriel. He really reinvented himself several times. I, I mean, it's obviously one of his most famous songs, but Salisbury Hill has always been hmm. a really fascinating song for me because it is so blatantly about his leaving Genesis. I think that it's really interesting to just hear it, you know, and listen to it through that lens and how sad it is in some sense. Um, what else do I have here? Yeah, so I wrote a few bands down that I thought really represented music videos for me. I want to give two shout outs to bands that were very, very much in my wheelhouse in the mid 90s through MTV that I I came to love still to this day, which is uh, Green Day and and then later No Doubt. And I actually have one of those like fleeting memories of seeing No Doubt's Just a Girl video for the first time and being like, this is awesome. Like I loved it. And I especially loved um, just the the music, the musicianship of Tragic Kingdom is one of the, and I've said this before, is like one of the great records of all time. And it's crazy how a band can make a record like that and no offense to them, never replicate it again, not anywhere close to it. And it's kind of a bummer because I'm a huge fan of that record. And and I was so excited when Return from Saturn came out four years later. And it was just kind of, it was some good songs on it, but it just wasn't the same. And so I really, really fell in love with No Doubt. People would think it was because I had a cr- crush on Gwen Stefani. It really wasn't. I actually, if you wanted, yeah, I had more of a crush on Adrian Young, their drummer, than probably anything. He was, <laughs> if there's one drummer that I play most like, and I'm not nearly as good as him, but that I wanted to replicate and play like it's Adrian Young from No Doubt. He was an incredibly 
inspirational. In fact, like he was the one that really wanted me to play drums when I discovered them when I was, you know, 11 years old and had just kind of been cursorily messing around with music and playing saxophone and doing other things, playing little drums. And I was like, no, I want to play drums. This guy fucking rules. And I even loved his, he used to play with no shirt on. And so what did I used to do? I'd play with no shirt on. And when I played drums right up through college, I just, I was just like my, my live show thing. I would take my shirt off. I, I'd get a lot of chafing anyway. And I think that's why he did it too. But people are always like, why did you play with no shirt on when you, when you play drums? And I'm like, because uh, Adrian Young played with no shirt on, you fucking asshole. And the other thing is that he would do things like put devil hair, devil, like have like his hair. Oh, I remember that. that. And I, I tried to do that with my hair. He was, uh, and this all came from music videos and from like the inline of the, the insert of the records and stuff like that. I just, I loved No Doubt and, and Tragic Kingdom is just so, so, so special to me. I remember buying it and I just wore that tape out. I just wore that out. No, no problem at all. And another tape I wore at that time a little bit before, but during that time as well off of MTV was Green Day when Dookie came out, that record Dookie in 1994. I mean, that was, it's impossible to describe to people how huge that record was. And I must have been at the very, very, very lowest age range of listening to that record. Because I imagine if you were in high school or because I was in fifth grade, I think, when it came out, if you were in high school or college, I mean, I, I, Derek tells stories about he was in London, I think, dur- during college for like a semester. And he saw Green Day during the Dookie tour in London at Brixton, which is like a fucking world famous. I didn't know he was in. Co- I didn't know that he did that. Yeah. And he's oh, in, in like a world famous venue, Brixton Academy. And um, wow. I was like, dude, that must have been wild because I didn't get to see Green Day live for the first time until 2004. And it was cool, but it kind of sucked. It was an arena tour. Uh, they were playing. It was an American Idiot tour. I think American Idiot's fine. It's just different than their other stuff beforehand. And they played the entire record and they played like one thing from Dookie and one thing from. And I was like, this kind of sucks, man. I, I would have been so jealous. And one of the things that I remember from this MTV era as well is associated, especially with Green Day, but with others as well, is MTV used to show live footage of bands playing all of the time. And that was really, really cool. They would be they would be like live at Lollapalooza, live at Warped Warp Tour. I remember seeing. Um, you know, where and the venues would be cool. I don't know if you remember this. This was probably more into the 90s, but there would be like an ornate pool, people partying and everything. And then a band would be playing like a real band. Oh, sure. Like the Chili Peppers would be playing and there would just be everyone would be going crazy. Like this, anyway, they were really playing. It was live music. It was so dope. It almost makes you wonder how they fumbled so badly. Like, how did you have such a cultural zeitgeist moment for what I would argue is not only Gen X, but millennials. And then you oh, just fumble it. And then it just it's to the point where it has no relevance at all. It's just so crazy because it wasn't a little bit of relevance. It was a lot of relevance. And so I remember just turning on MTV at almost any time in the mid 90s, especially over the summer weekdays, whatever, getting away from the the blocks at night that would show things like the real world or whatever. You could turn it on and be like, oh, fucking Natalie Merchant concert. Oh, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, unplugged. Oh, uh, it was dope. And, I, and it's it's not rem- over remembering it. It really was like that. You had yes. to sit through all the commercials. You like you said, you didn't know what you were going to get. No. You could turn it on and get five videos in a row that fucking wanted to put you to sleep. It, it's not to say that pop didn't play. A, I, first of all, I like pop music, but also it's not to say that that didn't play a huge role. It did. It played a huge role from the very, very beginning. Madonna came up and all of these others at the same time, you know, that that the guys were talking about and the hair metal bands and the glam rock bands and the rap rock bands and all the things came up later. So it always played a role. So you didn't really know what you were going to get. But it's so interesting to think about how engaged with it I was and how natural it was. And to the point, and this hasn't come up yet, but stuff with like liquid television. And then later, (sighs) just a little bit later, Beavis and Butthead and Daria. 
It's just there was just a fucking celebrity deathmatch, which was <laughs> oh awesome. God, celebrity deathmatch was so death. dude. Celebrity deathmatch was so good, so good, dude. And uh, I just it's so it's so interesting to think about all of the different ways it got me. Fucking Tom Green show. I Tom mean, you can, you can go, dude. You can go on and on and on and on. So it just it, it had me hook, line, and sinker as a kid, and it's weird that it doesn't it just doesn't exist like that anymore. It's just totally gone. It's probably more gone. It was both more relevant and, and it is now more gone. <laughs> than, it's interesting. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it really, it really is because I'm thinking about it just from selfishly from an animation perspective and it's so important, but it's so much bigger than that. If you just zoom out, MTV really invested in the nineties, especially, but since its inception, they really invested in creativity. And really kind of promoting the underdog in some ways, taking a chance <clears throat> and just, it sounds almost cliche, but a very art centric perspective in showing animation and design and presenting music and doing unplugged and really just really kind of a vehicle for art, all sorts of art. It's interesting. And I, I love bringing up someone like Madonna. Because not, I mean, it was unavoidable. My generation, unavoidable. You saw her, saw her everywhere, heard her everywhere, right? And made by her brilliant music, but made by MTV, mm -hmm. right? By yeah, music videos. Well she wouldn't be, she wouldn't have ascended to that height without the music video. Right. Just like without MJ the, with Thriller and all the rest. You same know? thing. Yeah. Michael Jackson, another one. I, I love bringing up No Doubt because that, that takes me back to a very specific era and how important Gwen Stefani was. I mean, not only cute and appealing, but sort of, I don't know, man, like reintroducing, I think, the fun and dynamic front woman, right? We had Madonna. We had, in history, dating back in music, we had people like Stevie Nicks. We had Lita Ford. We had Hart, right? We had the Wilson sisters, we had talented musicians and talented women that were in the limelight. You know, they were in the front. They fronted bands. But that specific era of No Doubt and Gwen Stefani, I feel like we were just coming out of sort of a kinder and gentler front woman. Like, think of Bjork in mm -hmm. the Sugar Cubes. Harriet Wheeler with the Sundays. You mentioned Natalie Merchant, 10,000 Maniacs. Like, it was a different sort of energy, you know, and here comes Gwen Stefani with that really strong, still feminine, I would argue, but a really strong girl power vibe, mm -hmm. right? And really kind of ushered that in for, I think, Gen X and the millennial generation, like really kind of reintroduced that vigor and having like the, the front woman who was just a strong voice, you know what I mean? Like I think about her and I just think about like the power of that music. Yes, it was poppy. Yes, it was coming out of ska a little bit. No, right? totally. It had definitely had those vibes integrated. But just a genuine sort of accessible, appealing style of music. And the visual component of that was a big piece, you know, of and I think important. I think really important. You know, and it really like I know Gwen Stefani's still like 
What does she do? She does that show with Howard Stern. Stern is oh, the that, voice uh, or whatever. Or what, or, yeah, no, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the, the the Howard Stern show is something different. That's America's Got Talent, I think. Oh, he's yeah, on with um, what's his name? Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel. Yeah, yeah. Right. 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 And I think it's funny. I, I just came. This came up recently, actually, because Micah and I were talking. She she's not real. I listen to No Doubt a lot, and she doesn't um really like them too much. And I'm like, it's so interesting, which is fine. I don't care. But I'm like, it's so interesting because she comes up. We see her on a commercial where we're watching football for the and it's like, damn, dude, no offense. But what happened here? I, I think it's cool that you are. First of all, I don't mind that you got all the work done or whatever. I don't care about any of that. What I'm saying is you yeah, are yeah. a rock star and you kind of it's cool that she she married Gavin Rosdale. Yes. Which, which was really interesting. They're not together anymore. But that for people that don't know, he was the lead singer of Bush, which is another 90s. Everybody's MPD crush in my generation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Dana loved him. And uh I was just like, it's so interesting. She reinvented herself several times, but it's like, would no doubt tours once in a while. I don't think they have in, in some time, but it's like, would she, could she still play spider webs? And would she still be interested in playing those kinds of songs as Sunday morning and, you know, um, just a girl and all of that, or are you kind of beyond and past that? Cause I kind of wish you remembered that that's actually where you come from. You know, that uh, is an interesting, cause yeah. a lot of people think I'm just thinking of Bjork. They're a lot different, but you know, Bjork sort of just shrunk from the limelight, right? And a lot of people do. They, they're that big. They're these iconic, legendary personas, globally recognizable. They just kind of phase out, right? You don't see them. But she kind of reinvented herself in a different way. So she's, you have to credit her in that way for putting herself out there, staying out there. But it is tough because those changes the especially the aging you know i think that's got to be kind of hard for a woman when you think of her energy and her youth and how she moved and how she danced and just kind of like the physical and you know her talent yeah. just her her out and out talent yeah right? and the very personal nature of the songs and stuff too and sure I mean, right, because they lot wrote of, a lot of that stuff. Right, Tragic Kingdom is really about her and the bassist. I mean, the, the yeah. basically the whole record. And I right. think it's really it's cool that they stayed. To, they they broke up, but the band stayed together, and then they played, and they all know, and they're in on it, and they're all making money and whatever. But it's a very emotional and interesting dynamic. I was very tuned into that when I was a kid. I really, really enjoyed them, and they always and and of course Green Day through Dookie into Insomniac into Nimrod. So those three records, which is prime Green Day. I mean. Especially, I I am a huge fan of Nimrod, which is uh, a really that's their '97 record. So, Dookie I think was '94, Insomniac '95, which was really good too, and then '97 was Nimrod, and um, it's just such a special record. And it actually was more and more dissociated from from the music video scene at that point for me. Although they did have a music video for "Nice Guys Finish Last." I don't know if you remember that Green Day song, but that was the, that, that was the first track off of that, and that was a really funny one too, where they're like playing at a high school, um, which is cool. So, but I think about just Green Day and how much that band dominated my life. Just an all that sequence of records was an all time sequence of records in my mind. They they ended up releasing a record in two thousand called "Warning," which was not good, and that was when I, in my opinion, and that's when I kind of fell off of them, and then I came back for their know their american idiot and 21st century breakdown run because that was a different green day and they kind of embraced and it was it was an arena rock kind of thing they had going on an operatic kind of thing but i, I gotta give a shout out to them and other bands i wanted to give a shout out to and a lot of this i i would be interested to know if dana remember this because again as i said earlier dana was definitely my 
I used to watch everything with Dana. Dana, when, especially Dana always had a motherly relationship with me even before our mom left. But after my, our mom left, our dad, that really increased to where I was like very attached to Dana. So I was always with her. That's literally how I, I came to know everything about 90210 and party of five and all these things like it's no joke like i've i watched that shit front to back basically after her even i watched 90210 all the way through when i lived in california um on amazon prime but i think about her in terms of music videos and there's very specific videos that remind me of her and i wonder if she remembers them so i wrote some of them down uh i I brought up earlier a lot of red hot chili pepper stuff from blood sugar sex magic that that whole record but give it away is the one I remember. And I don't know if you remember that one where their, their faces are painted cool. They're just in the field. Dude, yeah. first of all, I listened, that just randomly came up when I was working out earlier today. And what a rap rock banger. One of the great rap rock songs of all time. And when you when you consider written in 90, recorded in 91, I mean, that's pretty seminal. I think about Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun. Um, that was a she, you know, the melting Barbie doll in that video. Yes, we used to think that was so like I remember she being like really pointing that out to me. We used to love that. So I think about her with that smashing pumpkins. Oh, man. Right up through the the melancholy and the infinite sadness era. So the mid 90s definitely yeah. think of her with a lot of that stuff. A band that's very near and dear to my heart. One of my favorites, Stone Temple Pilots, um, both their record core in 92 and the record purple in 94. Those really remind me of her as well as their third record. Um, Tiny Pictures. She there's a few songs on there that she really liked, too. So I always remembered her about those things too. And then it's funny how that kind of evolved for me into bands like corn was really big for me on MTV. Limp Bizkit was huge for me on MTV. And I think really helped make them, which was interesting and neat. And then how the bands I loved and the bands that they kind of veered off from each other. What's interesting is a band I haven't brought up yet is three eleven. And actually my two favorite bands, three eleven and dredge have nothing to do with MTV and they both have MTV music videos. And I specifically remember seeing Come Original on TRL a few times and being so excited that it made it. But that was yeah. kind of like a bubble thing. I was into them, Ben Folds 5, Bare Naked Ladies, other things from just learning about them off of MTV and kind of consistently enjoyed them as well. And then there was this other entire track, like the other 50% of the music that I would listen to really came only from MTV or later MTV2 and certainly K-Rock 92.3 in New York, which was an iconic alternative rock new metal rap rock station i mean that that station was so good i don't know if it's good anymore but k-rock was so good so on the other hand you had the bands like i said like no doubt in green day and all the stuff that led into new metal that i really lincoln park and all that stuff that i really really absorbed from from mtv but it's interesting that i had kind of both of those tracks so while 311 had music videos and they had big records like uh the blue album is a triple platinum record for instance and down and all mixed up and all that stuff was relevant that's not why i cared about them and so it's just kind of the hit or miss. I always just wonder about the things I saw and just happen to see and still listen to today. Like a, a band like the Apex Theory, which who I really love. They only have one record. It came out in 2002. And I learned about them from MTV, too. And I just love them so much. And it's just because I happen to have seen them. I always wonder about the opportunities that I lost and the times that I didn't watch MTV or MTV, Two, which was most of the time and all the things that I missed and how my musical personality is kind of still instructed by those things to this day, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about like an iconic era with those bands and the way bands like Horn and Limp Biscuit sort of did take the baton from, you know, the green days and the smashing pumpkins and all that kind of thing where it was just, yeah. I mean, that's such an iconic era and really bands that were so big and really were able to take advantage 
of the music video format because it was still very relevant. I mean, Dana would have been like a lot of topics we do. She would have been really good for a topic like this because mm-hmm. she, she'd have a lot to bring to the party. But man, it's so, you know, just it's, it's so interesting. I'm going to go backwards here. This is going to be an odd choice, but this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do a topic mainly circle, you know, centering around music videos. And that's, I saw, I ran across this music video probably very early in my YouTube days, which was like 2008, 2007, 2008. I want to say maybe even a little earlier than that, but it's by a band that I, I, you know, oddly still don't know that much about. You may know them, Bell and Sebastian. Yeah, I, I know the name, were, but I don't know anything about them. I don't. I still don't know that much. I'm not even that familiar with their entire discography, but I remember hearing when they came out in, I think, the mid-90s. Like, let's say they came out in 95, 96. I do remember hearing at that time, like, from more than one person, you should check this band out. They're very reminiscent of the Smiths, for instance. And I remember also being attracted to their name because I we knew Bell and Sebastian from the anime show that Nickelodeon somehow leveraged and aired in the late 80s as you know this iconic anime show that people of our generation would remember that was also I think named from the French sort of children's storybook right and I knew they were a Scottish band I knew they were a relatively large band of seven or eight people and that's really all I knew but I remember early in my YouTube days Somehow this music video showing up in my feed, the video for their step into the off, step into my office, baby. Hmm. And I think it's 2003. So an odd era, but I love this video so much. I think it captures everything that a music video should be. And I think it just came 15 years too late. Like this, this video would have been so recognized and appreciated in the late eighties early nineties. It's just basically this little 19, you know, like late 1960s set piece, very period. It feels like a very office sitcom vibe. It's even filmed with that particular grain and that particular color palette and the art direction and the wardrobe and the hairstyling and the set design is very, very European 1960s. It's really strong presentation. And the, the video basically revolves around this guy who's involved with all these inter-office romances. But, you know, he's kind of like the office piece of fluff. But it's very, very comedic. It's really, really funny. It's very, very well done. And it just reminded me of, wow, this is a mu- this is a music video. This is what you could do with a music video. You could tell a little story. You could have really strong art direction and really strong, you know, sort of running by a by a director. You could have the band in it, even though I don't think they're playing music. The whole band has a part, and it's a pretty big band. And the cool thing about Bell and Sebastian is, and learning more about them is, they're still around. I think they did an NPR Tiny Desk concert last year. They got new albums coming out, and they, yeah, they've only at, been around for the mid nineties. I'm looking since at their the uh, hasn't been, you know, too long. Yeah, it's basically the. I'm looking at their um, Wikipedia, mostly original lineup, which is cool too. Pretty yeah. cool, and about a dozen records or so. So yeah, they've been around. They're from Scotland. and I think they, you know, they didn't come <laughs> over. They stayed in Glasgow, mm-hmm. you know, and but this, if if our listeners listen to one video that I'm recommending today, 
go check this out on YouTube. Step into my office, baby. It's such a good video. And it's almost, I almost lament the fact that it came like 15 years too late because this would have been one of, this would have won so many awards on MTV. It's so strong. And the, the ironic thing is, I think it's still on their website. I could not find who directed this video. And this person de- deserves accolades because it's one of the best music videos I've ever seen. It just, I wish that it came along when music videos were still a thing. But again, people are still releasing music videos and they're still a nice promotional tool for a band. But that, this is besides just coming off of working on an animated video myself, this was the one that came up again recently in my YouTube feed. And I was like, I love this video. You know, it's just really, really strong. You can see they had a great time with it. And um, yeah, it's everything I love about a music video. Just a little, it's like, I always think of a music video, it can be like this, like a short story is to a novel, just like this little gem. You know, it's not a film. Mm-hmm. It's not a feature film. It's not even a TV show. But I love the fact of just you could do something like this and just have fun with it and sort of send up sitcoms and put the band in funny situations. And sometimes it's kind of cool when you see the band like, oh, this guy's got this guy's got some acting chops. You know what I mean? He's got he's got more than one talent. That's kind of neat. You know, so that was really ironically 2003. But it kind of set the wheels in motion for me to kind of think back like, oh, music videos. We never really talked about that as a thing. And then, of course, everything that conjures up MTV and that whole era where, you know, it was such a big part of growing up, such a big part of our lives. And the other ones that I'll mention, um, we're going backwards again, interestingly enough. We're just, but this one was a, th- this video, you guys got to check it out. It's so charming. And I think a lot of people missed it because of when it came out, you know, 20 years ago now, but still that was music videos were all but done by that point. Yeah. I have so I don't even know where to begin with like earnest recommendations. There's just so many. I did write a few down that I guess inst- I was trying to be like, what, what instantly comes to mind? And a couple of things, a couple other things came to mind. OK Go has a famous video for Here It Goes Again, which is not what I'm going to bring up. OK Go's earlier video for Get Over It, which I, I absolutely fucking love that song. Um, I love that video. That's quintessential showing the band playing video. And I think it's very, very well edited and very, very cool. Uh, just a lot of like quick shots and interstitials and stuff. Um, Slipknot's video, Before I Forget, is probably the greatest Slipknot video and a, and a really great metal video because they all wear masks. And you're not supposed to know what they look like or whatever. In this video, they all have their masks off and they're all hanging around this room and they're all like in a circle playing and all the camera angles are so you can't see their faces, but you know that their masks are all off. So uh, like that, it'll be like right behind the drummer and you can see like behind him and like his ear and his and like the like his beard or whatever. But it's like his foot otherwise, but you see his helmet hanging. And and I love that video. The video is so cool. So you can't see anyone's like full face. And I thought that was really, really well done. That's a video that came to mind. Tears for Fears, Head Over Heels is a really mm. great video from the 80s um, in the library. And that's a cool that that really stitches a lot of like ethereal music video interpretation shit with live playing, which I think is is great. Um, I know these are fighting words, but that's my favorite song of theirs. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a where do you even begin? I, I, I don't know. They- they're an amazing band. I don't think I don't even know what I would answer if you asked what, what my favorite Tears song was. Did I, no, I tell I no you when Dustin and I did too many games this past summer, we had fans that came out from I want to say they were from Connecticut and they were really cool, really cool boyfriend and girlfriend couple. 
and they met us. They, you know, we, we talked for a while and then they're like, we're, we're not staying for the panel tomorrow. We got to go back up to Connecticut. We have a show tomorrow night at Foxwoods. They were going to see Tears for Fears. Oh, man. Yeah. And I was like, dude, that's so sick. I didn't even know they were still playing. So the fact that they're still around. I think Ali saw them see- maybe earlier this year or last year or something. Oh, quick, so, quick dude, they're still, they're still cutting it up. Yeah, they're doing, they're doing something because when I wanted to see them and I would look every once in a while in California and they would play very weird places, like they would play at a winery or some shit. And I'm like, I'm not going to fucking Napa. <laughs> to see this or whatever but um they should be filling stadiums yeah they're i mean they're tears for fears is they're that good it's a that's a one-of-a-kind sort of band if if people people should go listen to the record the hurting and songs from the big chair oh my god those two records are are so 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 i should know this are they australian are they english what's the deal they're english okay yeah okay i kind of knew hmm I kind of knew. Yeah, I was yeah. American, English, or Australian. I got to be. One oh of yeah, those. of course, of course. Yeah, the police yeah. would be like Australian, and yeah, <laughs> kind of get that mixed up, I guess, a little bit. And then I wanted to ask Dig about. I don't know if you have anything else you want to talk about with music videos, which is fine. But I wanted to ask about some of the other stuff. I mean, we're talking about music videos, and that's important. But what about Beavis and Butthead? What about the VMAs? What about Daria and Tom Green and Jackass? Do you have anything you want to say about these things, or should is that for like another episode? I mean, Liquid Television. Yeah, I mean, Liquid Television was Liquid Television was for those that don't know was an animated anthology show on MTV in the early '90s. I remember it still being on when I was in high school. Maybe my junior year was when it was in its wheelhouse, and it was such a big, just it was such a big vehicle, such a big outlet. One of the only outlets really for alternative animation outside of the film festival circuit at that time. Because you got to remember, this is prior to social media and prior to YouTube. And it was such a crazy but influential example of like animation could be more than kids' cartoons, it could be more than superheroes. And it could be more than feature films. Like there's this other thing, like these short form, weird little animations. And it really put on a lot of important artists and turned me on to artists that I would have probably never heard of Hmm. if it wasn't for liquid television. I think of guys like um, Richard Sala and guys like Joe Horn, guys like Mike Judge. Right. These guys who were these independent animators with these really offbeat voices and visions and styles that they could then culminate everything into one show. Peter Chung with Aeon Flux. Mm. I mean, Peter Chung was around for a long time doing storyboards and working for Deke and Sunbow and doing Transformers and, you know, Inspector Gadget and stuff like that before he had. Uh, you know, an opportunity to do his own thing. And then he became like an important beacon for animators with the inception of Eon Flux and went on to be very successful and re- and finally recognized. So Liquid Television was probably the one thing more than any other thing that sort of had me doubling down on, I want to be an animator. Just because you could, it just opened up a world of possibilities in terms of style artistic style visual style which really spoke to me and that animation could be more than these other things you know it could feel like it kind of took indie comic books and did an animation show based on that you know what i mean it wasn't 
Marvel. It wasn't DC. It was these other things, you know, and this was really kind of in the infancy of now we have Fantagraphics and different things, but indie comic books was still a niche thing at that time. So to have an animated version of that was just like everything to me. Like I never missed an episode of liquid television. I still have some of them on tape and just how much. That's cool. You should dump those. You should dump those. I do. I have, yeah, I have them. And yeah, you, know you should dump them. I'm saying onto dig into digital format so that other people can have them, you know? Yeah, it, no, I know what you're saying, yeah. but, and you know, what's interesting. NFL films is right across the bridge, like in Cherry Hill. Like it's not far from here. It's like one of the big places you could, you could do that. And, um, my skate videos too, you know, I have a lot of things on VHS, but I could, I could dump them to disc or I could, I could even get visual, uh, digital formats of mm-hmm. things, which is interesting. But you know, yeah, you, you probably, probably have can... cool commercials and shit like that, and and like a lot of random things. That yeah, because I wasn't skipping, I wasn't dubbing those out. You want to know something, Mike? And I've been doing one once a night for the last probably week. Is we just watch a random episode on YouTube of The Price Is Right from, mm. and we watched one from 1972, 1979, 1983. And they have all the commercials in there. Yeah, and all the commercials are in there, so we just watch the whole hour. It's dope. And then I think the newest one we watched was from 2003 or something like that. Um, I love the fact that people take the time to catalog those and make playlists like that's so cool there's there's a whole i mean you know this better than me because you're such a youtube guy is that there's just a whole group of people that like are obsessive obsessive over that like old shit old circulars old going to old malls that are dead and going to kmart the day before it closes and doing all that it's just it's so dope it's just so 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 dope dope. because you want to feel what that time Mm -hmm. you want to what it sounded like what it looked like what it tasted like what it felt like like you you really want it because it's so different now yeah you totally. know, and only old men with our perspective, but just in general with all the animation, MTV had so much, they really backed animation, whether it was liquid television or Mike judge starting with the head and then doing Beavis and Butthead and then later Daria MTV's the max, you know, taking that Sam Keith image comic and really like p- taking it so faithfully from page to screen like one of the great comic book adaptations is the max and a lot of people don't even know about it which is so sad but they really backed animation at a time where really only spike and mike's twisted animation festival was backing animation like animation wasn't a thing like it is today like where you go to netflix and there's hundreds of things to why choose is from. that why do you think that they were like they had the foresight to say like we're gonna do beavis and butthead i don't know if it was I think it comes out of the tradition of, I think, being in New York and a combination of, you know, the arts, graphic design, Madison Avenue and animation always being a part of that coming out of the tradition of like, just think of earlier in the 80s, the animated IDs. I want my MTV, all Mm -hmm. the different logos, whether they were stop motion or traditionally animated, different artists that did it coming out of that. But I don't know. And, you know, you think about just being in New York, all the art schools, right? SVA and FIT and Parsons and Pratt and Cooper Union and just the tradition of arts. And at that time, still when MTV started out, Keith Haring was a big thing. So it was like, you know, just coming out of the tradition of, I wonder if it would have been that way if it was anywhere else. But being in New York and New York still being a big part of animation. You know, back then, whether it was TV animation or second only at that time to the West to to Hollywood, you know, now there, you know, New York is, 
you know, a second, a second rate city for animation, unfortunately. But back then it was a big thing. And just the fact that, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it was the fact that it was Viacom. Yeah. Were they with Nickelodeon yet at that point? Yeah, well, because Viacom still from, owned all those entities. Right, so maybe they learned something from that. Because isn't it interesting? See, what I was thinking, Dave, as you were going on was, yeah, yeah, Nickelodeon was kind of doing this thing at the time, I would say from the late 80s into the late 90s, where it's like, okay. And this kind of changed a little bit with like um, maybe Doug or something and and Rocco but and CatDog and all that shit later. But it was like, yeah, we're yeah. going to have Nick Jr. and cartoons and some stuff like that. And then we're going to make live action stuff for our older kids and our teens and maybe the 20 something hangers on. So sure. I think about, Hey dude, welcome freshman, Pete and Pete, Alex Mack, <laughs> space cases. Uh, are you afraid of the dark roundhouse? All of those things were. And then, and so they were like, we're going to go live action to get them. And MTV is going, we're going to have cartoons to get them. And I just thought that that's interesting. You almost would think that there would be more harmony so that in a, in a more sane world, you would have seen Alex Mack on MTV and Beavis and Butthead on Nickelodeon in an adult block, therefore solidifying them as some sort of early cartoon network or something. It's just so strange that they had all of it going and they just kind of split them apart and then transpose them like that to the point where the animation for teens was on another channel and the right. live action shit for teens was on the channel for kids, you know, uh, very strange. And, and I, was, I was all wrapped into that shit at the time. So it, I was, I was hook, line and singer for all of it, frankly. Yeah. You know? But when you think and about what some, did they care, they had all of it. Right. That's true. And when you, th- right. it's just so funny when you think about like salute your shorts or Clarissa explains it all or something, you could think about it just tuning it up to, to a little higher age, a little higher sophistication. And that would have been perfect on mtv yeah it's really true um yeah yeah. nickelodeon never nickelodeon always stayed still still to this day i would i would argue they have a little more actiony stuff that's proprietary now like ninja turtles and stuff but other than that they do stay below a certain age line where but what what's really crazy for me to think about from a perspective of that era is being sophisticated enough to recognize that animation could be appealing to older kids and adults because that wasn't a that was not a train of thought in the west at that time they were the ones that got it i guess first i mean at least very yeah, fashion west. forward yeah definitely and very I, fashion forward I, so i love that that's so interesting that they they percolated they had percolating all of these different ideas that probably would have been harmon- more harmonious with each other but maybe we're also people were more open to them because of where they were so I, I won't I won't deny that as well, because MTV got very adult with some of the things that it did. I, I don't think Beavis and Butthead was one of those things. Looking back at Beavis and Butthead, it's so mild and stupid and it was so controversial. There were only two cartoons I remember really being controversial ever for me. And The Simpsons, to a degree, mom and dad had a problem with that, but I didn't watch it anyway. It didn't matter. But the first was that and the second. Um, well, yeah, the first would be Beavis and Butthead for sure. And the second, obviously, based South Park. I would yeah. say Family Guy probably would have got them, too, if I was a little younger, but I wasn't. I was yeah. well in high school by that point. But Beavis and Butthead, when you look back at it, such a cultural phenomenon, so interesting, so funny. I remember very clearly not being allowed to watch it per se and just watching it at the Cotcher's house. And, you know, we they didn't give a fuck and we would just watch, stay up and watch it. And it was so fun and so interesting. But it wasn't it was just more like you were getting over on someone than it was than it, it, it itself was really crazy. The whole Again, destroying music videos. That stuff's so funny. It's almost like early React content or YouTube content in some way. Absolutely. 
And yeah, that's the watching same with like the mystery thing. theater guys. It's very, it's very similar. Exactly. It's very similar to that. And then Daria, I think, and we talked about Daria recently. Daria was so special to me because I felt, I felt so connected to it as if I lived that life or something. I don't know. I didn't have my own Quinn or anything like that. And I didn't, but I felt, I loved Daria so much. And I just, I, I lived for that cartoon. I loved it. And then the, the I brought it up earlier, but just to, to go over it quickly is Tom Green. Although that Tom Green show didn't last very long. That show was so fucking funny and so ahead of its time. Do you remember that he had his two friends as his, as like his co-hosts, but yes. one of them was just on a TV, like from somewhere else. He was just like, and it was just in the background and he was just on a television and he would just laugh. That's all he would do is just laugh. He wouldn't say anything else. I totally else. remember that. And that he used to, it was kind of early. I, I, I don't know if Bam or the guys have talked about this, Johnny Knoxville and stuff. It must have been somewhat of an inspiration for Jack, like the early Jackass and Camp Kill Yourself stuff, right? In, in the sense that, like, he was stealing his dad's car and getting, like, a lesbian porn scene painted on it. But that was, like, way before Jackass. Absolutely you know? it was. So I wonder if they were inspired by that at all. Tom Green is so... What, that show was so fucking funny to me. And Dude. I just, I, I was, I was so bummed when it went away. It didn't last very long at all, but I just thought it was so, so, so good. I, I mean, I, I loved it. He wasn't the first absurdist comic, but he was the first one for our generations, you know, where it was like so, so funny, but you knew that a lot of people, especially even if they were slightly older, wouldn't get it. And definitely came with a certain, I don't know, like a certain credential because he came out of skateboarding so that you know he was a skateboarder so that and i think at first he kind of kept that private or as a side bit but as that as he became more established he kind of revealed that part of himself so maybe directly linked to spike jones and the people that start and the jack you know steve-o and knoxville and bam and all those guys that just later kind of took the baton and ran with with jackass but yeah because i mean do you remember cam kill yourself like that was so yeah of course so i i remember cody had that the dvds in like the late 90s early 2000s i was like this is so fucking funny like it was of course mtv found them and brought them over basically to do like do it so give them money and means like when they went to japan on jackass i was like dying just die i just it was so yeah that it just hit i don't know if it still works i haven't seen any of the new jackass stuff really probably since the first movie but um they're still doing stuff yeah they are it's just I, and they're so what makes it funny is it's like the same guys i think and they're all fucking same old, dudes you know so it's yeah like pontius and all these isn't ryan done dead yes yeah so he's gone yeah steve-o is doesn't do it anymore right he's, he's like he's like no, Steve was still or something. Oh, but he's no, sober. Steve, Knoxville is the one that's like superstar status. Oh, now. okay. Steve was still. Steve was very successful with his podcast, right? And he still, got sober, he's still right? Involved. And he like he cleaned up. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. Yeah. And Bam is the only one that's on the skids because Bam is just. I don't know if you follow his. I heard he's like his, not uh, in, good, in good shape or whatever. But he was just seen a week ago, like at our Costco. Like he's not even. He's from Westchester. He's not even from here. You know, but he he's been hanging around Bucks County or whatever. Dude, I'm is, really worried about him. Yeah, because you knew you knew him back in the day, right? A little bit, a, a little bit. I'm not I'm not even sure. Did you know the other any of the other CKY guys? No, Bam was the only one because he was the only one that skated downtown. You know what I mean? He would come in. I mean, way At before Jackass or whatever. Yeah, even before the FDR days, he would come in town. When I first moved to Philly in '94, he would come down with a couple of friends and Phil and his dad, and they would just film. 
you know, and sometimes Phil would be the filmer, but they were affiliated with Fairman's, which is a suburban skate shop. It was kind of Westchester's Sub-Zero at that time. Um, but yeah, so Bam was the only one that legitimately skated, at least downtown. And then, of course, FDR, when FDR blew up down in South Philly, he became a big part of that. But he, he was the thing about Bam that sucks is that he was just, a, besides being a personality and being able to have it all like these guys still do, you know, and them sort of making, trying to make inroads to him being a part of it. He was just talented skateboarder. You know, I feel like he was one of us, you know, and uh, yeah, it's a shame that he went down that route, but I love talking about Tom green. Cause I feel like he's all but forgotten. And that sort of flavor of comedy was so special and relatable at that point, because we kind of, we kind of all knew somebody like that. You know, maybe even not that funny, but he just seemed like such a regular dude and he got up to things that were so relatable. I don't know. Like, so it just felt like a typical suburban, any, you know, anywhere USA type of vibe. And, you know, I guess he burned too bright and kind of faded out. But yeah, he was a little early. You know, what? it, rem- it reminds me early. of <laughs> for like the nerds out there. It's like Sega net or something, you know, mm. or on live where it's like yeah not yet we just weren't ready for yeah, it not, not, not yet not yet yeah, yeah. Too early. you know like when the sega channel came out or something it's like no not yet or when the dreamcast <laughs> would like go to the on the internet it's like not quite yet not quite yet soon and i think that that was kind of a thing he, you're just you're victimized by just being too early or being too late timing is really everything you know oh it's everything dude but i'll remember they Tom were Green so forever. I kind of miss the days when they had to be, you know, when they had to like cable TV and you had to be sort of cutting edge or forward thinking and you took chances, you know, they took chances on things, but think of things like Dar. you bring up Daria. I worked on the last six weeks of that show in the layout department right before it got canceled. I didn't know that. Yeah. I I got hired at MTV. I took a layout test for Daria. I didn't think I did that well on the test. I was a little confused. I was a little mystified by what they were asking for, but I did a character layout test, which was basically like a bunch of keyframes with one background of like Quinn and her boyfriend or something. And I remember handing it in. It was back in the day, like the late 90s, might have been 90, late 97. I was still finishing up school. And I did it on animation paper. I boxed it up. I FedExed it. Like this was like before even email was a thing. And I got the job. I got the call. And I, I went in for six weeks. I worked from home partially. And uh, I think I went into the office two days a week because I was still in Philly. So I was Amtracking my way up there. And then, yeah, the show got canceled six weeks in. But that was such a special show because they, listen, it was like there, there had been animated sitcoms before, dating all the way back to the 50s with the Flintstones. Flintstones, yeah, I was going to say. But there was never an animated sitcom really that caught lightning in a bottle for teenagers. And they did it with Daria. And it wasn't really about the art direction. It wasn't about having this animation. It was about the writing. You know what I mean? It was, it was about so the droll, writing and just dude. the characters. It was just so droll. It was so good. So yeah. good, dude. Yeah. And people were ready for it. That's what I, you know, and, and it, was, it was just time. And somebody knew that. Or somebody at least was willing to take a shot, which was kind of cool. And I felt like that, that summed up MTV. You know what I mean? They just, they always felt like they had their finger on the pulse and it always felt 
I don't know. I don't, I don't, as a kid and as a teenager, I just don't remember it feeling corny or at least the stuff that you weren't dialed into. If you didn't want to watch MTV raps, if rap music, hip hop wasn't your thing, you just wouldn't watch Dr. Dre and Ed Lover. But there was something for everybody. And it always felt like it was important to tune into from a pop culture perspective because you were coming away with something, you know? And yeah, man, it was just really special at a time when, you know what I mean? They, we, it, we didn't have a lot like that. I felt like it was for us. I mean, maybe it was one of the first things that was just like, felt like it was for us. You know, it wasn't for our parents. They didn't get it, right? It certainly wasn't for our grandparents. And the people that were born in the early 90s, they weren't obviously watching that. They were tuned into Nick Jr., if anything. Right. So, yeah, I love that. And I love the animation component. And just dating back, like, I know you're not supposed to call it Viacom anymore. It sounds too harsh. You're supposed to call it Paramount now. But Viacom was dialed into animation all the way back to the 60s with Bakshi and Terry Tunes being in White Plains. You know, there was this like, an, I love the New York, I love the animation component, obviously, because I'm such a mark for animation, but- the New York animation thing was such an integral part of that. I remember my friend pitching a reboot of Heckle and Jekyll. I don't know if you remember Heckle and Jekyll. Oh, look it up. There were like two magpies. It was an old Terry Tunes cartoon from the 60s. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't remember this at all. And he was like, you guys own this. You know what I mean? Like, I know you don't remember it, but you still <laughs> own this. Let's do a reboot of Heckle and Jekyll. And they almost went for it. So they were on board for anything. They were at least, I know the jackass guys, I hear Steve-O talking about this a lot. Like they went to, MTV was a last resort. You know, they would go to Showtime. They would go to HBO. They would go to all these outlets and everybody would be like, what the, you know, basically like it would be like a two minute meeting till, you know, the executives were rolling their eyes and they were ushered out of the office, scooted out. MTV was like, yeah, all right, what do you need? How much do you need? You know? Then they would say, well, give us a half a mil. And they would say, we'll give you 200,000. It's like, all right, deal, you know, that type <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah. And they did it and they were happy. And then they became yeah, huge. huge. They became household names. They took, did, and you understand this because you were around it, Kyle. They took what was already existing in the skateboard world mm -hmm. with Big Brother magazine and all the hijinks and skate videos and they introduced it to the world. Totally. It was brilliant. Totally. You know what I mean? That's why the connection to CKY is so. This, the connection to CKY is seminal. I mean, that, that and, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's essential. I'm sorry. You, you were going to say something. No, I mean, they took what a little bit of us, a small fraction of the population already knew and just introduced it to every mainstream audiences. I remember when I, when Jackass came out late in my high school years, I it felt like I was watching something. I was like, wow, I'm ahead of the game on this. I know some of these guys already and know this whole thing and know that guy has a CKY shirt on or whatever. And you kind of just caught it. I, I dug that as well. Yeah, this Heckle and Jekyll, I, I, um, I'm looking at, I had, they're kind of frightening actually. In a, in a, <laughs> Terry Tunes was like a real low budget made for TV, an entire animation studio. I think they were initially owned by CBS and some, something happened with CBS and maybe they're still integrated. I, CBS might still be integrated into the Paramount machine somehow, but you know, they were just like schlock, you know, made for a TV, made on the East Coast to compete with Disney and Jay Ward and all the other who's, but on a much lower budget. And working out of White Plains, that's kind of cool. I love how- Deputy dog. I love how 
little subcultures of potential workforces of these niches exist or did exist in places like that. Because I think about that in North Carolina, how there's just because of Epic and Insomniacs there with half their staffing and all all the rest, there's like a little bit of a bubble game, a gaming bubble there or whatever, or out in Bend in Oregon, outside the places you would think. Um, I wanted to ask you about a couple other things and we can talk about whatever else you want that we didn't touch on yet. What about MTV News? Mm. I always think about MTV News, the the, uh, the typewriter thing popping up like da 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 And then you have your little interstitial. It was usually going back into the show, I think, that you were watching at the end of every half an hour. They would have a little thing. And I don't know. I just remember this from from Kurt Loder. Like we said, Kennedy, who's now on, who's been on Fox for years and all the rest. It's so interesting to think about that. And I remember it's so strange because I, I was 10, nine or 10 when Kurt Cobain died. And I remember that it was all over MTV and that you would almost get the most valuable. I was even aware at that time and certainly later, like when people that I cared about died. Bradley Knoll was a good example of that. Lane Staley and others that that was kind of like a valuable place to actually get news and information and feedback from the people that you care about that matter. It was, a, again, a very it was very forward thinking to say like, we're going to have some sort of serious news style outlet. We're going to actually do documentaries. I think this bleeds into what ends up happening with their reality shows, not so much road rules, but more of the real world, which is really a documentary in its own way, like a kind of a pseudo documentary. And certainly, and, and we got to talk about the influence that has, and we'll get there. But what, what do you remember about MTV news? Anything specific? That's a great call up, man. I forgot all about MTV news. It was such a huge thing. It was such a, I remember Kurt Loder specifically and feeling like, who's this suit? You know, who's this stiff upper lip or whatever, but he was so iconic. And I think it really played into being my age, like later in my teens to make MTV feel a little more, a little more serious, Mm -hmm. a little more robust and like a little more, I don't know, like substantial. Yeah. It's a destination where you can get more than one thing from it. Yeah. It's not just silly. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's also not like, I guess it would have been easy at that time, especially early on to feel like this is a feed, right? Like it's just looping videos and commercials and station IDs. Right. But that brought in like a daily component, like almost felt like live television Mm -hmm. in a way. And that was integrated in. So it felt more like it wasn't just like tuning into a radio station. Where it was just like everything was like on, on a on a loop, you know, on some on some conveyor belt, and yeah, it was it didn't just it discussed whatever was topical, mm-hmm. right? It didn't have to be pursuant to music; it was anything. Not at all. Indeed, I think that MTV should get a lot of credit for its its vote drives. I guess it would be maybe not eighty four, but eighty eight. 92, 96, 2000. These were all big get out the vote. They would do like these huge free concerts yeah, where they would sign people up to vote and all of that. So they were, it was cool. It was very, to me, I, I remember that very well, that, that it, it felt very, MTV felt very adult to me, even though it wasn't always adult. It felt like it was something kind of sophisticated. It in, must in have life. for your generation. Yeah. Yeah. Rock the vote. That was rock, rock the, the vote. vote That's right? what it was. Rock yeah. the vote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they would do these, these huge bands would play these huge live shows and people would go and they would just get signed up to vote and you get, they get some content out of it. It was brilliant. I mean, it was, they did so many, they did so many brilliant things and that's what I wanted to kind of end on. Unless you have anything else you want to talk about, which is reality television. Mm. 
the real world is the first reality TV show. I'm pretty sure as we understand it. Right. I mean, can you think of you were you're older than me. Can you think of anything else that was I can't that's like that? Not for at least I don't remember anything, but that was certainly the first one that was dialed into and catering to younger people for sure. You know, because they were basically the first I remember the first season of Real Real World like it was yesterday. And the first few seasons were probably the only ones I ever really paid attention to. But they were all either college or post-college kids. Right. So it was a. It was an they were at an age where high schoolers were certainly down to watch it because they were slightly older young people. So you were already like early career people. So right. it was appealing. It was almost like watching a live version of Friends or something, you know, at that time. And yeah, man, it was like, but there was, it was ushering. Well, we didn't realize at that time, the first few seasons where it was, it was ushering in this sea change. You know, it totally. was the beginning of this thing where everything would kind of change forever. But I remember enjoying it, at least early on. Well, it's so interesting because I, I was before we started, I was looking up some dates because I wanted to make sure I had this right. The real world ran began running in 1992. So that was your senior year in high school. Senior year. yeah. And it ran until 2019. I couldn't tell you anything about the last 15 seasons or so of it or more than that, probably. But it was like this. I remember being really important to Dana. Um, yeah. and Allie later on and to a lot of my friends. And I remember introducing a lot of interesting notions to people probably in a, a national and global stage, AIDS and death and job loss and heartache. And I remember, cause I remember what was it? The second or third season, the guy had AIDS that when they were in San Francisco, I think it was in the, yeah, 90, was that the third, the third season, something like that. And that was like a really big storyline. But what's so interesting about it is that and again, I'm probably off. I'm looking at the reality TV Wikipedia and there's a bunch of things about all oh, this was a reality in this. But I don't and older people can tell us about the relevance of those things. But it seemed like from my perspective that this happened and then it took a good five, six, seven years for the networks to understand what was going on. And what was the first network that understood it? CBS. And which is obviously associated with Paramount and Viacom and MTV yeah. and Survivor. Was was in my opinion the first mainstream, and then they did Big Brother, and there were other shows on other networks like The Mole and all these things that were that were early on. And then before you knew it, the dam broke. So it's so so interesting that they kind of threw that out there. It was very successful, but no one else knew really what to do for a while, like how to replicate it. It's almost like the networks and a lot of these places were just totally married to scripted television. I think what ended up happening, Dig, is when and I think this is materially true now, but it certainly was true then is when these people realized how much cheaper it was to do this than it was, than it is to do scripted edited content. They're like, Oh, okay. I think it just took, took time for them to figure out that it's way cheaper for them to just send 20 assholes to an Island with Jeff Probst and a fucking camera crew than it is for them to do a 24 season or 24 episode season of how I met your mother or whatever. And they're like, okay, cool. We'll just, we'll that's do that. And then they point. made an asinine amount of money on it. And the, the margins became huge. And then that's all it became. I, I almost, to the point where I almost feel like the sitcom is almost dead. I mean, I, I think there are a few examples left of it. The procedural seems to even be dying. Now it's about like this. And I only, this, my only view of this is from football com- commercials during football. And, and I watch every network at some various points. Like it seems like it's a lot of, LA fire 
and sure. you know things like that. And this mom is mom still loves this stuff. You know, yeah, right, exactly that kind of right. thing. It doesn't seem like a lot of comedy. It doesn't seem in a lot of news news journalism sure. and all that. Sure. But so, what do you think about that gap? Why did it take so long? Can you think of anything between the real world and Road Rules, and then Survivor? I I, I don't. Again, it's just it just seemed like it was all sitcoms and all dramas. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I was largely tuned out of cable TV at this point. I was so busy in college that was like right in that specific era of time. But definitely, I think we make a great point about the budget friendliness of the reality show. You know what I mean? Think of uh, Skeleton Crew, limited (laughs) tech, right? limited overhead and also just a strong appeal to people wanting to see reality and I guess the voyeur nature in all of us. Right. And tapping into that really like, Oh, people want to see, people want to see when people live together, it's like having a roommate situation, but you don't have to deal with any of the negative aspects. You just have to watch. Right. Right. And that, and that certainly appealed to me. And I think that's still appealing to many people yeah there is something about reality tv that's undeniable that it's so good and i think that it can be really well refined dana and i are a huge fan they don't do them anymore but the pbs series of manor house and colonial house and all those things where basically they would just take they for people that aren't familiar with these these things and i wanted to be on colonial house so bad they would take they take just random people sometimes families or single people whatever of all different ages so that there may be like 20 or 25 of them and they're like all right all of you are going to live in colonial America in 1700. Here's your piece of land. These are your roles. And so like someone's the mayor, someone's like a workman or whatever, and you get what you get and you have to do it for six months or whatever it is. And Manor House was so cool because it was in this be- beautiful Victorian stately manor and someone was the hall boy and someone was the, 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 the Lord of the manor and they were just regular people on the outside. And it caused all this tension between them as they had to kind of like go through this these roles as they live out the past, but live out the present, very dynamic and interesting stuff can happen when you remove the script and just do it. So I appreciate that. But I think a lot of it was just shrewd money pinching and very wisely. So, I mean, when you think about the Osbournes or something or Hulk Hogan and some of these other people, even fucking the dude that played Peter Brady, right? They, yes. These guys all became mega relevant for things that had nothing that to do with that. Yeah, that show was awesome. He was married to Adrian it. Curry or Adrian Curry or whatever her name was. Yes, right. I forgot about my I fair Brady about that show. My fair Brady. Yeah. So that was a wonderful show. Yeah. So I, it's just so interesting to think about the the Osbournes. I, Black Sabbath wasn't relevant to me at all. It, I knew Ozzy Osbourne even as I'm 38 years old now. I knew Ozzy Osbourne. I knew he was a singer. I knew he was a metal guy. I knew that he was connected to things I really loved, like family values and all that kind of stuff, which were really important to me. And people can go look up the family value tour, which was absolutely insane how good the, those shows were but um he was really the dude from you know, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been for right. your generation and largely for my generation too if i didn't have dad introducing me to sabbath and so ozzy that probably would have been my association too and, and jason dill was on that show i think jason dill pro skater wants everybody to forget that but he and you know what i loved about actually real world specifically i remember this really speaking to me was that each you know each series each season was set in a different city so it would be new york seattle miami so it had a real interesting set piece nature Mm -hmm. to me 
where it was like every season is going to be in a different setting. And I think largely from a skateboarding perspective, that appealed to me because I was always, I'm, I've always been very interested in cities, but I loved that too. Like they would, it wouldn't just be New York. It wouldn't just be LA. They would go other places, sometimes offbeat, sometimes places that you were really curious. I didn't know anything about. And they, it's true, man. They must've really, the return on those reality shows of minimal overhead, minimal payout and maximum profit must've been astounding. Huge. It must've been such a, such a model for staying in the black. Yeah. Who even know? knows? I'm sure there are probably some residual costs, but way less than paying all the residuals that you're going to pay to everyone involved in a fuck in fucking full house or something, whatever you're It's a you great know, point. Thinking. So yeah, pretty interesting. Is, is there anything else that you wanted to say? It's so interesting talking about this day in the sense that really, I mean, obviously music MTV, but music is the binding product between all of these things. It's the water cooler in some sense. It, it's so interesting that it wasn't that until we were able to, listen to it on our own and then to be able to visualize it is a whole other thing that's why i think live concerts are some of the best things ever and why i dedicated so much of my time as a younger person to going to concerts even concerts that i didn't really want to go to or things that i didn't care about or things i never heard of and that's how i saw so many different acts and so it's cool that there was at least for a while a brand that really was able to speak to it and now music i think is in some ways fucked and weird in but in other ways so dynamic and active because you can really do and put out whatever you want. And as I've said many times to people, because I talk about how the games industry is really suffering from the lack of residual money, but that the residual money in music has never been more because there have never been more live shows. There have never been more festivals, cruises, Sure. All these, there's just a million different bands. Like, like I said, when I saw Gin Blossoms and, and Sugar Ray, that they can just come to a place like Central Virginia, play for a couple thousand people and make a little bit of money is like awesome. And so it's in some ways more alive than ever. But I think that the general front facing product is, is unfortunate right now. And that's why I just listen to so many old things, but what, what are your closing yeah. thoughts? Or is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, man, I, that's a great point about just music or any sort of creative endeavor. Like there's no barrier. There are so few barriers anymore. Now, every, everything's heavily saturated. If you're trying to get a podcast going or you're trying to get an album launched, Right. Yeah. Or an animated series, even on a big thing like Netflix. Like it's, it's so easy for things to get lost in the shuffle or, you know, unrecognized. But yeah, this is a time when I think that's what a lot of these nostalgic topics, but especially this one, like, I think that's the interesting aspect of it is that it's so interesting looking back with the perspective that we have now and just how much things have evolved. You know, it's so it's so different today than it was when MTV launched 40 years ago or, you know, however long ago. It's like it's a pretty insane. This rapid evolution is really kind of crazy over our lifetimes. And, you know, looking back at this particular era, it just reminds me of so many it just reminds me of the way it used to be, which is interesting. I'll go out on one thing. I want to talk about one video and just the power of MTV and this had an effect on me for the better part of 15 years where you wouldn't have even necessarily listened to a certain band or musical group but the video sort of drew you in and I'll talk I I think about this with Guns N' Roses and I think of a music video that would probably be on a lot of our top 10 lists in November rain mm. right mm. this is just on my list, I have some 
interesting offbeat ones. But this is the one that I think is the most iconic. 92. I was still in high school. And 92 is still a time where I think MTV just had a lot of potency. Like it was still important. It was still very much a part of our lives. It was going to start changing now and ushering in the different animated shows and ushering in the real world. And it was going to start to change, but still very much in its traditional mold. And Guns N' Roses is an interesting one for me, man, because I remember being in seventh grade. This was probably 86-ish. They came out, made a huge splash with Welcome to the Jungle. I remember the music video. I remember it being on MTV every two seconds. I remember everybody rocking the Guns N' Roses shirt. Guns N' Roses was the great leveler as far as rock bands because I feel like it was universally appealing. Like the metal heads at that point that we went to school with, right? The real heavy metal dudes and dudettes. They were rocking the Metallica, the Iron Maiden patches on their denim jacket, Megadeth, but they weren't. Right. But Guns N' Roses was something different. You know, like the preppy girl might wear a Guns N' Roses shirt. Like their appeal was really strong. And I remember that sort of LA glam hair rock thing. I didn't get it when they first came out. I wasn't really feeling it. Right. And then a couple of years passed. It was very popular. It wasn't for me. And then November Rain video came out in 92. Yeah. That's Use Your Um, Illusion too. Right. That is the first album. Oh, I think. Okay, yeah. I think it's Use Your Illusion One. And I think I always loved the ballads. You know, I remember mm. Poison with Every Rose and I remember Motley Cruz ballads and oh sorry, this is a power ballad. Right. And I just remember this video because we already had things like thriller. Don't get me wrong. We already had the 15 minute long legacy videos narrated by Vincent Price that were like mini films. Like I get it, right? Like it's, we already had those epic offerings, but this one was different because it did have the drama and the scale and it had the long version and the short version it had, but there was something about the scope of this video. I think it's a very good song too, but you know, just something about the 56 piece orchestra Mm. and the epic cathedral and Stephanie Seymour, right? Like the supermodel vibe. And it had a story, but it also had the band playing, but there was something happening. You know, Axel and Stephanie are getting married, right? They're in the church. Slash forgets the ring, (laughs) right? That Slash has to, Slash is feeling out for the ring. Then later on, it all comes out, it all works out. And then Slash leaves during the ceremony. Like, what is he doing? He's going to play his guitar solo outside. <laughs> yeah, right? dude. And it goes it from this epic cathedral, like almost like St. Patrick's Cathedral interior. And he walks out and it's like a little chapel, you know, in the middle of the desert. Like the exterior is just a tiny little thing. That's awesome. So good. So stylized. He plays this epic guitar solo. And I just remember how lavish it felt. You know, it felt like high budget. It just felt big. And... It was the first video where I was like, I think I was just like, it almost made every kid want to be a rock star. They're hanging out in the bar. They got their cigarettes and their whiskey and they're lined up with the supermod, Stephanie Seymour and her flock. And they're all hanging out. I'm like, well, I want to, I want to do this. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? I want to be a part of this. And I didn't even like Guns N' Roses at that point. So it just goes to show you how, and none of my friends did. 
it just, but we were, every time that video came on, we were front and center. You know, we were, we were held enraptured. We were just like, all right, like we have to sit here for 10 minutes and watch this thing. Dude, I think it's just like, it was such an important part of, of growing up. Mm. You know, I would have never listened to Guns N' Roses on the radio, but every time that, every time that song came on, I wanted to watch that short film, you know? And it just reminds me of just the power that those images had. And just like, there's just something about tying music with filmmaking, I think, right? Two things that we all love. We all love movies. We all love music. Let's put those two things together. That's the brilliance of the music video. And that's at the heart of this conversation for me, because that's the thing I think I miss the most is just the music video. You know, that's the thing that started it. That was the fuel. And I don't know. It's just different. I know they still exist. I know we have YouTube and I I love YouTube. I know you do too. But it was just like a different world where it seemed like these things were so important. And I guess it was such an interesting time in that now we have, I don't know, content is just a dime a dozen now. We only had so much of it to ingest back then. So it was all special, right? Even if we didn't like the music. Totally. Yeah, I was going to say November Rain I like the song. I, I'm not crazy about it, but I love the intro. Like the first before the vocals, the build up and all of that the build up. leading into like the flute or whatever is played. It's just so dope. Such such a, a great intro. Yeah, very well said. And I was looking up something about Duran Duran because I feel like they tried to replicate that when they came back with that self-titled record, the wedding album or whatever that they was released. Was that Ordinary Life? Yeah, yeah, Ordinary World or whatever. Ordinary World. And I think they did a very similar music video. Like it wasn't where they get, someone was getting married in the rain. Yes, or I think like you're right. So there was like some some zeitgeist they were trying to capture with that too, which is funny, but yeah, that's well said. The, the, the last thing I wanted to say was, and I, I forgot this, I was looking at my notes here. The, do you remember the show Undressed? No. That was a MTV show that was on late at night that was kind of more for high schoolers and maybe even college kids that was, that were basically about sexual hookups in it, You should look it up. It's, it's almost hard it to up. describe. It, it, it would be like a 10 minute or 12 minute story of yeah. like a girl in her dorm room and she's like hooking up with this guy or whatever, but something, you know, there's some, there's some, something to learn from it or whatever, but it's pretty well done and very subtle and weird. And it was called undressed. And I remember that being like a very, that felt very adult too. And I remember being on late at night. So yeah, That's definitely, so funny. definitely check that out. Yeah. I wanted to Yeah, it started that. in 99. I remember the name. I feel like the name is just iconic. But I'm looking at it now, 99, soap opera, six seasons. Yeah, <laughs> and it had it had like this very iconic branding on it where the show I remember would just start and it would just say undressed in small letters, I think, on it. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. You know? I got that image. Yeah. Yeah, like the silhouette. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, check that out. That, that would, yeah, that's that might, one I missed. Yeah, that might be interesting for you. And then that was like a high school thing for me. But yeah. And then we already brought up Celebrity Deathmatch, which I just wanted to shout out again. I just thought Judge Dude. Mills Lane or whatever. It, it was so that show was really, really funny and well done and, and a great way to kind of take the piss out of people, I thought. So I wanted to get another new, and another interesting way to tie in animation with relevant celebrities that were, you know, newsworthy at the time of the of the matches. And just a great vehicle for that was done by a small animation studio in New York called Amp, Amp NYC. They were called who I worked with for a short time. I worked on a little short they did called Broccoli. He was like a little, 
He was like a, just a little piece of broccoli who had just a, you know, he was just up to hijinks. He was a rude <laughs> little son of a bitch. But it was like secondary. I don't even know if the pilot ever even went out, but they were working on Celebrity Deathmatch at the time. I wasn't allowed anywhere near that because I was still in school, I think. But that was an important one. You know, that was a really big thing. And to do stop motion and stop motion is expensive, man. And that was traditional stop motion, you know, which is all but, you know. A dinosaur all but buried, dead and buried yeah, today. It's too bad, man. Stop motion. We were talking about that recently on another episode. I don't know what the what the context was, but just about how cool that was, how I tried to do that with uh, my friend Eric. You remember Eric? And he had a stop motion camera in the 90s and the earlier mid 90s or whatever. And we would try to do things with Star Wars figures and so cool and cars and try to move things around. And it was just, yeah, it was really cool, but so complex. You not accidentally knock something or I just couldn't imagine doing that with stakes right where you have to get you it's not just you're not just dicking around like you better not bump anything you know holy shit like that's gotta I, be, I came in a mat yeah the tension yeah and the patience gotta be crazy even for an animator that's yeah i think leica in portland is the only stop motion studio still around but they're directly infused with cash by they're owned by nike pretty much the head travis knight phil knight's son Runs the he's an animator runs the studio so I think they operate directly off Nike money, so they did they did films like Coraline and Paranorman and stuff like that but and, and they do beautiful work but I think they're only around still because of and Henry Selick who directed Nightmare Before Christmas and stuff like that he's like the animation director there he's like the head of creative there, but that's it I mean or else you know. Yeah, it's a shame because that, I, I think that would be my dream to do that for a living. It's a beautiful Just art like form. lock me in a room and let me do stop motion, especially with the technology they have today mm-hmm. where you could go back and you could fix errors with the computer and stuff like that. Still traditionally done, but there's fail safes, you know, so it's interesting. Right. It reminds me a lot of ILM and Star Wars with the the miniature motion control yeah and just getting all that right in real time though which is so cool them driving the truck really fast down like you know like you see them in the fucking back with the camera fucking probably holding on for dear life and they're just driving like 40 miles an hour and then something explodes you better hope you got it dude so good yeah it's a great it's good shit love oh, it. man. i love that it was hard and i'm not saying it's not hard today it's very difficult today but there's something different about that about like animating the traditional way or doing stop motion or yeah whatever it's just it, there's just something so ballsy and interesting about that that i love um all right dake that's it for this episode of i was fun what'd you think i had a great time oh yeah it was fun it was fun to reminisce Always. for a little while i think people will enjoy this one do you want to end with a dad joke yes this one's hot off the presses man oh. this comes from our friend james on the old dms Kyle. james says he was recently asked who his favorite vampire was. And he said, that Muppet from Sesame Street. And they told him, he doesn't count. James <laughs> replied, I assure you, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Not, bad, James. Not bad. I feel like James might have made that one up. So I give that one extra credit. A little verbose, but good. A little verbose. Yeah. There might have been a more elegant way to say it, but still, hey. I didn't have any. No, I didn't. I'm not. I'm not sitting here writing jokes. James is getting paid. <laughs> the writer's strike he might is be, over. But not so, by us. So jokes are being written again, which is good. <laughs> um, all right, my friend. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Hope you're well. Hope you and yours are well, and hope everyone you, is doing friend. well out there too. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash/LastStandMedia. Merch: LastStandMedia.store, including free shipping here in these United States on all stickers. So check that out if you'd like. 
We'll see you next time for more. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. William Holbert, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, SL the FMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Rallo, Mr. Ayub, Landon Pipkin, Casey Raymond, Corey Tidrington, Exian, Magic Marker 215, Adam Tabiat, Jordan Vallett, Edward Fryrear, Ross R. Lowe, Kevin Hawley, Hugo Delagia, Austin Lipka, Paul Warren, Harold Eustache, Will Williams, Dinos Roar, Nicholas Renaud, Shane Breck, Jack Singh, Sean Llewellyn, Michael Mash Potato, Sweaty Magic, Nate Izod, Hargeet Chani, Ellis, Albion, Josh Sullinger, Gunner117, Andrew Roman, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Dark Archer SC, My Name is Mayo, Eddie Medina, Jason Arzan, Sean Hatfield, Christopher Knock, Ryan Daly, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Whiskey Sin, Zia Parix, Sean Miles, Relentless Rex, Alan Tiniak, Dustin Klingman, Christian R., Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Jeremy Roberts, Luke Aldersley, Dustin Grab, Zach Cohen, Peyton Stone, Ethan, Fozzie Bear, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parades, Dante, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Halsey, Dio or Die, T-Bone 007, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Zuza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Travis, Joe, Ross Chandler, H-Trons, Antonio C, Ryan, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Theo, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, Tikos, Of Fortuna, John Zyle, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapier, Saul Balcazar, Birdo64, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Kendrick Callis, Jimmy Rodriguez, TB Lightning, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allum, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Stewie 108, Andy Miller, Patrick Montgomery, Richter 86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Joel Holcomb, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Logan Sharp, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelek, Jordan Town, Brian Chand, Organic Produce, Carlos Algarit, Mike Menzel, Night Draft, James Hayes, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Joosh, Tyler Lyle, Martin Beck, Gavin, Jerome Ferreira, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, John Schultz, Tom Quinn, Carlos Chanter, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Pork and Beans, Jean-Francois Forzi, Tony Zaniga, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Corey Dustin, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, JSC Zero. 0828, Bo, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Thomas Sablin, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmort, Geo Corsi, Joey Gondholliger, Alex Monez, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, Austin Riley, Paul Joyce, Alan Hopkins, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Don Lee, John Cordero, Greg Julius, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson-Peterson, Tyler Harris, Kyle Martin, Mad Mock Media, Bo Burkholtz, and Jonathan Rice.